Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the MJ Cast. It's Saturday, the 22nd of October 2016, and this is the Michael Jackson and Prince Roundtable Part 2. Welcome back, everyone. Hi, I'm Q. I'm just coming to introduce and also farewell the end of this episode. So, welcome back to Part 2. I hope you enjoyed Part 1 of our first ever roundtable discussion just as much as I did when I got to hear it for the first time. I'm glad you liked it. It was definitely a lot of fun to record. (laughs) Uh, I can tell. I can tell. I'm really looking forward to hearing part two when it comes out today. That's right. So uh, just a bit of an update for listeners. You're in your new house and the internet finally got connected, I think, a couple of days ago, did it? Yes. I don't want to swear and curse out Telstra too much, (laughs) but holy heck. Took a little while. (laughs) My God. My God. But yes, it looks so far, it's all seems to be running fast and smooth and yeah. Yay for fiber optic. Definitely excited to have you back again, connected and ready to record our future episodes. So yeah, pretty excited about this episode. Make sure you go back and listen to part one as well uh, if you haven't had a chance to check that one out. Uh, It's basically, uh, we cover a lot of the artistic side of Michael Jackson and Prince, definitely their sort of uh, musical prowess and uh, performances. So it's a lot of interesting listening. In this episode, we get a little bit more into some of their other aspects. Interesting topic to kick things off. A little bit, um, a little bit sort of of a solemn topic. We talk about how both artists passed away. Similarities uh, there, which turns out to be quite an interesting one. Before we delve into how each artist challenged an organization and industry that wasn't really set up to see them succeed financially long-term and also in terms of their artistic independence. So yeah, quite a few deep, interesting topics in this episode. So yeah, if you're just tuning in for the first time, definitely go back, listen to part one. This roundtable isn't a Prince versus Michael Jackson sort of episode. So if you were hoping for that, sorry, that's probably somewhere else. Someone else has done that probably. This is more a discussion of both of their careers and their influences on each other and on art in general. Yeah, and that's something that's been really well received by the Prince and Michael Jackson fan communities in general with this show. Uh, We've been really happy actually with how many um, people have been enjoying the show and uh, people have, yeah, really got on board with the whole discussion of influences rather the prince versus mj thing we wanted to avoid that because it's been sort of done to death and blah 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 yeah thank you for everyone that has shared the episode as well by getting the word out it's it's, yeah we've been really really happy with how it's been received and shared yeah special shout out to prince.org they've done a great job of uh, promoting it just on twitter and uh, Facebook, and they've actually got a, a thread uh, in the main Prince discussion area, a sticky thread devoted uh, specifically to uh, the 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 show. So jump on there and have a chat with Prince fans. Um, a lot of fun. Cool. Um, this episode as well does not have uh, extremely detailed show notes. The reason for that is because there's just so much discussed in this episode. Every minute or so, there's like two or three different Michael Jackson and Prince-related specific things. Um, So if I had have made show notes, they would have been like a million miles long and you never would have been able to navigate them all anyway, (laughs) properly. So uh, for this episode, Google is your show notes. And YouTube. And YouTube as well. If you want to see something specific like a song or a video, just Google it and you, or YouTube it and you'll definitely be able to find it. Uh, next week we'll be back, or next episode I should say, we'll be back to making regular show notes. But I just don't see how it's possible with roundtable shows to do that uh, effectively. 
And but you know what? If you find something really awesome mentioned in the show and you want to share it with others, go and pop it in the comments uh, over at themjcast.com for this episode. So you can share that link with other people if you really have something that you think, oh, my God, I need to share this with the Prince fam or the Moonwalkers. Definitely. Um, On this episode, we've got our usual suspects back from episode 41. So we've got Charles Thompson, Paul Black, Samar of the MJAP, Casey Rain and Kim Camellia of the Violet Reality, and I'm there as well. Uh, the, The moderator of the episode is Paul Black, so very similar format to the first episode, uh, just a continuation of that, really. Uh, and of course, if you want to find out a little bit more about the Violet Reality, which is Casey and Kim's YouTube channel, uh, they ca- they cover a lot of things to do with Prince, uh, Prince news, Prince discussion, similar to the MJ cast, but video and a little bit more condensed into sort of 10 minute episodes. Uh, you can find them on facebook.com slash the Violet Reality, twitter.com slash a Violet Reality, Instagram.com slash The Violet Reality. And you can also find them on YouTube just simply by searching The Violet Reality there. Definitely hope you subscribe. They're the world's fastest growing Prince YouTube channel. Very, very interesting to watch. Lots to learn about there as well. Awesome. Well, I guess kick this show off. I'm looking forward to hearing it myself. I hope you all enjoy the uh, MJ cast roundtable discussion. Michael Jackson and Prince part two. The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. All right, welcome back to episode 42 of the MJ Cast, part two of our Michael Jackson and Prince Roundtable. It's really exciting to be here with our uh, guests again, uh, doing another roundtable show. I can't wait to do more of these in the future as well about different topics. Uh, But we do have, of course, Casey Rain and Kim Camellia here, both hosts of The Violet Reality. So welcome back, guys, to part two. Thanks for having us. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no worries. It's been lots of fun. And uh, could you tell the audience just a little bit about the Violet Reality and what exciting things they can find at that YouTube channel? Yes, of course. So um, the Violet Reality actually started before Prince passed away. And we were originally going to make a lot of videos uh, um, making updates around Prince and what Prince was releasing and things like that. And then we would do side projects like um, artists that Prince would be influencing and we would talk about Michael and things like that and music in general. And so now after Prince has passed away, we feel like it kind of is our duty to keep people updated with what's happening around Prince and like Prince land and that it does not go in the same way as it went for Michael and with this whole estate and how that went. We just want Prince to be like remembered in the way that he should be remembered and we want to sort of be a helping hand in that yeah and and the other thing is that um um for whatever reason um you know Prince was always very mysterious and and because of that there's a lot of um knowledge and information that is at risk of getting lost over time um so our our biggest video so far in, in terms of hits is a video that we call uh, that's called five prince movies that you never saw and it's about five movies that he wanted to make that never got made or you know never got seen and it's it's pretty in-depth stuff 
and and that's why it's been so popular so there's a lot of uh, topics in in that kind of you know idea that we want to be dealing with, mm-hmm. and and just to make sure, as Kim said, that Prince's legacy is respected and commented on in the right way, and there's uh, there's already a great deal of, of of controversy, you know, surrounding his his posthumous legacy. Um, so we touch on things like that, and we get feedback from the community, mm-hmm. much like you know lots of episodes that you guys have done uh, with this show. There are topics that absolutely need to be discussed, and, and that's what we hope to do. That's fantastic, and I understand that. I, I saw you guys put out on Twitter or something the other day that the Violet Reality is the fastest-growing Prince YouTube channel of the year. Yes, it mm-hmm. is. Um, we've we've been really kind of overwhelmed by the response that that we've gotten so far, to the point where we've we've kind of reassessed what our schedule is in, in terms of the amount of. Prince videos that we're making and the ratio of them as well, because we are doing other things, you know, the music related things primarily that, that aren't, it's not a hundred percent Prince channel. Um, but, but we're keeping, keeping in mind, uh, the popularity that we've gained and what our audience is responding to. Um, so yeah, so we are really happy with it. Fantastic. And we'll have a link to the violet reality in the show notes. Thank you so much. Um, um, I just want to say as well, the first video that we made, the first Prince video um, was dealing with all of his methods of distributing his music, all these kind of creative ideas and, and pioneering methods, um, which we put out a month before he passed away. And I was told that he watched that video. So oh, wow. Kind of saw our first video. That's uh, very special indeed. Also here with Charles Thompson, UK journalist and legal correspondent for the MJ Cast. Charles, how are you going, buddy? I'm very tired, but I'm okay. <laughs> what time is it there in, in the UK? It's 10 to 3 in the morning. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay, love, we'll, we'll keep moving. <laughs> well, welcome back to the show. And also, uh, Samar of the Michael Jackson Academia Project. How are you? Hey, I'm all right. I'm okay. Hanging in there, hanging in there. Hanging in there. We'll get through. Awesome. <laughs> and um, yes, lastly, we have Paul Black. Uh, Paul, how are you? I'm still awake too, but I guess it's only maybe midday here. <laughs> it's lunchtime so. for us. <laughs> but, you know, we got up pretty early, so, you know, not as bad as, as Charles, you know, he's, he's, he's a trooper. Um, yes. So, yeah, it's great to be back and we've got another great roundtable uh, section of, to, to get through for this episode. And we're going to be continuing on talking about a variety of topics uh, as we did in the previous show. Hopefully you, you caught some of that and uh, got some insight into both the careers of Michael Jackson and Prince. So maybe if you're a Michael Jackson fan and didn't know too much about Prince, you got a bit of a taste of what uh, Prince might have to offer and you might get into to exploring some of his work and his career. And similarly, if you're a Prince fan that's joining the MJ cast, uh, you get to hear a bit about you know why, the, why we like Michael as well and maybe you can sort of figure out a way to get into his career as well if you haven't done so. Okay, so what we're going to do now is we're going to actually take some time to have some personal stories, some experiences. Uh, in our first show, we gave a bit of a rundown of some of the experiences or connections that uh, we've all had with both Michael Jackson and Prince. And so we're going to take a bit of time now just to uh, get to know some of your personal stories um, and specifics on some of these experiences. And I might actually kick it off, tell a couple of stories that I haven't told before. I guess the first one that I thought uh, was worth mentioning regarding Prince was uh, that I was very fortunate to attend a show at uh, Prince's home 
uh, in Minneapolis, basically, at Paisley Park. You've probably all heard of, uh, of his home in Paisley Park. So it's kind of uh, the holy grail for most Prince fans to uh, be able to attend a show at Paisley Park. And I was very, very fortunate to uh, get this invitation through uh, his fan club uh, online community at the time. They sent out a last minute thing saying, anyone who wants to come and party tomorrow night, and it was literally the next night, um, register here. And you registered, and within like two minutes, it was all gone. And I think you had to pay like 30 bucks or something, but it was just a token sort of payment just to make it a, some kind of an official ticket, I guess. Um, next minute, I was on a plane to Minneapolis with a friend of mine. And yeah, we just ran around town, exploring the town. I'd never been there before. Got to uh, go and visit First Avenue where they shot Purple Rain and the manager gave us a tour of the whole place. And that was pretty exciting. And then we went to Paisley Park and waited around for quite a while. But eventually they let us in and it was amazing. It was like, you know, I guess it would be the equivalent of going to Neverland for Michael fans. And it was right, you know, the soundstage where he shot a lot of his performances and films, so like Graffiti Bridge, which is always one of my favorites, some of the performances in there. So I'm like right in amongst that whole soundstage area uh, where the show was happening. Um, he also has a few things on display throughout his home. So I got to see the Purple Rain motorcycle and... I kind of couldn't resist. I had to touch the motorcycle. I don't think he was supposed to, but I was like, oh, I've got to touch it just to say I've done it. And we got to have a bit of a look at the the entrance in the front of his home as well, where he has the whole thing laid out. It's quite an impressive design. And just to sort of be there was, was quite exciting. Um, and yeah, it was so last minute. We didn't even know if Prince was going to actually... Um, perform it's it sounded like that's what it was but it was just come and have a party basically at prince's house and you know it was like okay does that mean he's performing or what uh this was in 2009 but yeah he did he came out um he had a few guests he had larry graham there and a few other people and he did like a two three hour show um it was incredible just seeing him in that environment playing all of these tracks and it was just a, an amazing experience to uh to see it was definitely on my bucket list so to actually be in the place where a lot of the music and the, the vibe and the sound was created and see where all the performances had been shot and i think he'd done the 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 raven to the year 2000 i remember seeing that live concert on a video and and thinking wow imagine being there and all of a sudden here i was so that was a pretty exciting uh, experience. Um, so yeah, that was that was my main sort of Prince story. And I guess you've all uh, you've heard from me as well on previous shows. I guess it's worth mentioning that, that that with the Michael and Prince thing was that yeah, I was very lucky at one time uh, to actually sing on stage with Prince doing a Michael Jackson song, which was Billie Jean. Um, so if you haven't heard that story, you can go back and listen to in a previous MJCast episode. Episode 25, Right Place, Right Time, Black Magic. Episode 25, which was definitely definitely Right Place, Right Time, but here, here I ended up on stage with Prince singing because I was a sort of a musician and did a lot of recording and performing and not only singing with Prince, one of my idols, but singing a Michael Jackson song the way I'd sort of done it, you know, in, in, in previous, I used to do it with bands and tribute shows and stuff. So that was pretty exciting stuff for me. So that, I'd say they were my sort of highlights in, in, the, in the Prince and Michael Jackson world. Um, let's see, what about Kim? Do you want to tell us some personal stories about your experiences through Prince and uh, the Jacksons? 
Yes, I do. So, um, regarding Michael, I've never been to a Michael concert or I've never met him in real life because um, I was a quite young fan, so I never really had the chance to. But a thing that I did do was I did meet his nephews, 3T. And um, the story around that is that um, we, as the Dutch fan community in Holland, had just done a memorial on June 25th in 2015 and um, after that we sort of found out that 3T was going to do a concert in Holland on the 26th so the day after so me being kind of close to the city where they were going to arrive in so obviously they would arrive in um, the airport in Amsterdam Schiphol the biggest airport in Holland and so a friend of mine had like all the scoops on it and she knew at what like um gate they were going to arrive where we had to stand and things like that and she knew at what time they were going to arrive so we stood up really really early in the morning and then hopped on a train at like 7 a.m and then we went to Schiphol airport waited for two or three hours and we were really nervous and like some of the people that I was with actually had met them before and one of the ladies that we were with had actually met Michael and so she had all these stories to keep us entertained while we were waiting but yeah and then they basically came out of the gate where it and and then we got the opportunity to talk to them and hug them and they were so nice and they were so friendly and they were just lovely lovely people and um a lot of fans that had stuck with them for years and years and years even brought them presents and things like that and they were so lovely they stayed with us for about three hours taking pictures and everything so they were so nice yeah. so yeah mm. <laughs> <Love> <laughs> that's my um yeah that's my experience that i've had with the jackson family and um so on Prince, um, unfortunately, I've never had the chance to see him live either. I really, really wanted to. But for me, it was I was just too young to go to his concerts on my own. And no one really wanted to go with me. My mom used to be a Prince fan back in the day, but then she never wanted to drive me to concerts and things like that. So I never had the chance to. I really, really, really wanted to attend the um, Piano and a Microphone Tour concert that he was going to do in Birmingham. But then that got cancelled. So I never got the chance to. So that is why it makes me feel a bit um, like emotional when people actually talk about their concert experiences with Prince, even if they've only seen him once, because um, I've never had that. But still, he's been a really, really big influence on my life because um, I've met most of my friends through him, actually, because around 2013, 2014, he became very, very active on Twitter. And so all of the young Prince fans actually felt like they could reach out to him in this kind of way, because where you wouldn't have seen on like the forums and things like that they felt like they could reach out to him like that because it was a more personal way of talking to him and he was always very very entertaining on twitter and he's the reason why i want to do music myself and i want to become just a fraction of what he was like the person he was and how talented he was so yeah cool and don't forget that's how you met casey right yeah it was <laughs> we um so i i uh yeah well obviously i was some um, I'd been in the Prince fan community for quite a couple of years and I knew pretty much everyone there was to know, but I did not know Casey, even though he was really known in the Prince community as well on Twitter and everywhere, but we did not know each other. So then on this one day, we just like met and we started talking and we're like, wow, so both of us are really, really massively into Prince. And then it just clicked from there. And now I live with him. Yeah. And Michael, Prince and Michael. It's like, it's awesome. like what I, what, I, what I always say that people... Uh, you know, it's one thing to be a Prince fan. It's one thing to be a Michael fan. But if you're a fan of both, then I like you already. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Casey, do you want to tell us a bit about some of your experiences? Because you've had some pretty exciting ones. I have. So um, I, want, I want to talk about a quick Prince experience. Um, 
and a quick microphone actually that I, I didn't talk about in, in part one and it's just popped back into my uh, into my mind so with with Prince um I met him that's that's the short version <laughs> uh, awesome. unlike many many fans um most fans i guess i did get the chance to meet him and talk to him and um just like you were saying uh paul with your experience it's it often comes down to right place right time and yeah. that was the that was the case for me um i saw i think it was five uh of the 21 night shows in london uh, and four after shows there was an after show every night prince didn't always play at the after shows but maybe half the time or more he did um, so I went to as many of those as I could afford as well. And usually we wouldn't leave the venue until about four in the morning. That was the kind of average time for getting out of the after show. Um, on this night in particular, it was the same show I, I mentioned in the last uh, episode where he played 1999 for the first time. Um, it was it was that show. I was there with one of my best friends. Um, we went to the after show and Prince came out and he performed for another two and a half hours, I believe it was, after having done after having done the stadium show. The difference being, as with his uh, most of his after shows, was that the after show focus was not on hits. It was on album tracks and covers and jams. He even played Head, which he had never played for years. He didn't sing it, but he played it. And he had Macy yeah. Parker play the vocal melody on the saxophone, uh, which was absolutely phenomenal. He did Party Man and he did Girls and Boys complete with the hand wavy dance, I call it, from the video. <laughs> uh, I think all Prince fans know what I'm talking about with that one. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of the show, um, the after shows were in, in this club inside the O2, which is called the Indigo. And it had a kind of interesting layout where there was this whole section of the club that people wouldn't go to because it was kind of you couldn't really see it. You had to walk all the way to the end of this one wall and then it'd be a gap in the wall and you'd walk through and there'd be another um, uh, section another bar and some bathrooms and stuff. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't very visible. So Prince had performed his his after show performance and my friend needed to go to the bathroom. And so there were bathrooms right by the stage. And I'd already sort of wandered around on one of the other after shows where Prince hadn't played and found this kind of almost secret area. Um, and I, so I said to my friend, I was like, look, he's just come off stage. Everybody's going to these bathrooms by the stage. But I saw another one. There's another one in this other section. Let's go there. So we walked around to this other section. There was nobody in there. There was a guy standing behind the bar and that was it. Uh, my friend walks into the bathroom. I'm standing outside the bathroom waiting for him. All of a sudden, the door next to the bathroom opens up. Prince walks out. Stands next <laughs> to me. So at this point, it's just me and Prince standing there mm. and this guy behind the bar. And then there's this gap into the other section of the club uh, where everybody else was by the stage. So we started talking. Um, my jaw had dropped. I didn't really understand how to speak anymore form a sentence <laughs> um I, I, I don't get starstruck it doesn't happen to me but in this instance as you can well imagine uh this took me very much by surprise um so we, we kind of once i'd figured out how to speak again uh, i thanked him for the show and, and we made small talk and he was grinning from ear to ear he was so happy um because obviously he was in his element uh, he, he said that he was having a great time in London and he really loved it here. It was one of his favorite cities. He was really enjoying all the shows. He loved the venue, this kind of stuff. And this probably didn't last more than maybe two minutes, if, if that, um, by which point people looked through the gap uh, that were in the other section of the club, saw that me and him were standing there. And all of a sudden, this mass exodus of people started rushing towards us, which was uh, 
quite scary actually it was about <laughs> probably about 200 people all started rushing towards me which is quite a unique uh, thing to, to experience before i didn't even see the guy there but there was a bodyguard watching us the whole time he took prince out through another door just in a split second and he was gone yeah and that's that's wow. my meeting prince story <laughs> awesome that's amazing amazing yeah wow. <laughs> yeah it's um Oh, and I should mention that my friend was in the bathroom the entire time, and then he walked out after <laughs> Prince had gone. By which point, I, and he was like, "What's wrong with you? You look like a ghost." Uh, and I was like, "Prince just came out, and I talked to him. He was like, fuck off! No, you didn't.'" <laughs> I was like, "No, trust me, this just happened." So that was absolutely mad. It was very, very, very mad. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's still weird to think about because I'd already. This was like three in the morning and he played for like six hours or something at this point. And everything was already kind of in a dream world for me at that point. But that that was very, very, very surreal. Cool. Um, in in terms of, uh, of Michael's stuff, there was um, a very, very poignant moment that I had, um, which is very cathartic for me um, when he passed away. And uh, I was in Toronto uh, in Canada at the time. I was on tour with, with my own band um, when we, we were in between uh, shows and, and hotels, just got to the new hotel when the news broke that he'd you know, been rushed to hospital, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we had a show book the next day in a place called Young Dunder Square, which if anyone's been to Toronto is the square in the middle of Toronto. It's like the, the focus point of, of, of downtown. So we had a massive show that, that was there. We got an email that morning. So this is the day after he'd passed away saying um, Michael Jackson fans in Toronto uh, are organizing, uh, you know, a massive public tribute tonight. Um, we saw that you guys are, are playing uh, a set. We don't want to, you know, interrupt, you know, your your show plans. But we'd, li we'd like to ask you if you could split your hour long set into two half hour sets and give us you know an hour in the middle to to have our our, our michael jackson public memorial um celebration event and of course we were like yeah we're fans as well like we're not just some man that's playing here like of course like we want that as well so we played the first half hour of our of our show there was maybe a couple of thousand people there watching us in in the square um and then we went backstage after half an hour into our kind of tent that, that we had set up and and then we we started hearing michael's songs being blasted over over the pa um so we kind of sat sat in our in our tent for 10 or 15 minutes just kind of recuperating and, and having some some water and stuff and then we we're like let's go out and, and and see what's happening and at this point there was maybe fifteen thousand people in the square so it had gone from like two or three thousand to fifteen thousand in the space of 10 or 15 minutes uh, once michael's songs had started playing on the pa and so we were like, we should we should do something when when our set comes back in, and so so we we kind of uh, watched what was happening and enjoyed you know the songs being played and 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 sort of talked to a lot of people and and whatnot and kind of got our got our grief out very publicly as as everybody else did there, uh, and then and then we hit the stage for the second part of our our set, um, by which point it probably increased to about twenty thousand people in the square. Hmm. And so we decided to do uh, acoustic guitar performance of The Way You Make Me Feel wow. uh, as, as a cover. And all of these 20,000 people in the square stayed and cheered for us and sang along with us as we sang The Way You Make Me Feel um, in the middle of Toronto. Wow. 
So wow. I got to I got to express my grief by singing a song that I love with twenty thousand people singing along. Wow. Um, which was incredibly um, poignant for me. And then everyone stayed for the entire of the rest of our set, even though as as a band who makes, you know, British Asian music that's primarily sung in, in a language that not a lot of people there would have spoken because half of our songs are in Punjabi with other English parts. They still stayed and, and danced and enjoyed the rest of our set, um, which was like... We kind of all said afterwards it was like a little gift from Michael after his passing, uh, <laughs> given yeah. given us this huge crowd. Um, so, so yeah, it's that's a pretty incredible. Moment. That's it incredible. Was an absolutely phenomenal moment. There's a small clip of it on YouTube, I believe, because um, this. I mean, this was 2009. Still, most people didn't really have smartphones, and the cameras on them were not fantastic quality. But uh, there is a couple of clips of it on on there. So cool. All right, Charles, do you want to tell us a few personal stories that you've uh, had experiences through Michael or Prince? Well, I don't know how I'm going to top performing for 20,000 people in Toronto, <laughs> but um, uh, <laughs> I already told you about some of the Prince gigs I, I've been to. I think um, I think one, one is a story about Sam as much as me, which is that... Um, when Prince came over to London in February 2014 for the hit and run shows, it should have been really like a euphoric time for me as a fan because um, I don't live that far from London and and it would have been quite easy for me to get up there to some of those gigs. But what happened like just very cruelly was that um, literally on the day of the first concert, we were called up to the hospital because my granddad had been given a few hours to live. And then on the day of the second concert, he passed away. And so as the week was continuing, he was performing, Prince was performing all these concerts, including Shepherd's Bush. Under any other circumstances, I would have been at Shepherd's Bush that weekend. And um, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. So, but then the following Sunday, about 10 days after my granddad passed away, I was um, I had to go to London because I had an appointment, uh, which I couldn't break because I would have been screwing up a plan for five other people. So I was in London and um, I just get a phone call. I was just about to go home and I get a phone call from Sam. And he says, Charlie, I'm in the queue outside Coco right now. And they've just announced that Prince is going to do a second show. And if you get here quickly, you will get in. And um, I just <laughs> had this like <laughs> dilemma, you know, like, do I, well, I was, I was just on my way home and it was like, I got to um, a certain corridor in the train station. And if I was going to go home, I had to turn right. And if I was going to go and try and get into the Prince kids, I had to turn left. And I sort of paused for like, maybe 20 seconds and then I turned left and um, I got to I got to Coco just as they were opening the doors and the queue was enormous it was like stretched all the way up this massive residential road I passed Sam in the queue and um, say hello and then 
keep walking and walking and walking for what seemed like another three or four minutes before I got to the end of the queue. I thought, there's no way I'm going to get into this gig. <laughs> and uh, I was edging nearer and nearer. And there was, um, and what was happening, what I was noticing was all these bloody queue jumping bastards were just appearing out of nowhere, just sort of joining the queue halfway down. And um, it got right down to the wire. I was one of the last people that they let in. And um, it was 70 quid, that one on the door. I was stuck right at the back. I'm not a particularly tall chap, so really all I could see was prints from the the nose up <laughs> for most of the gig. Um, and that was the... Uh, that was the marathon gig, which was supposed to be show two and three, but ended up just being a very long show two. And um, I missed the the final encore like a twit because I walked out early. And um, and then Sam, who lives in the exact opposite direction to me, drove me home about sixty miles out of his way because all the tube had stopped running because it was so late. And um, that's why I love Sam so much. Sam's such a, a great guy. We we um, we have some proper dust-ups sometimes online about <laughs> Michael Jackson and stuff. But, you know, he's been a very good friend to me, and I, I really do love him. And I just wanted oh. to say thank you, Sam. Oh, man. Bless you, Charlie. Thanks, man. That's very sweet. <laughs> Wow, and that'd be a great time to uh, get Sam to tell some stories. That co- that night at Coco, um, I'm a massive Leanne Le Havis fan now, but that night at Coco, uh, I remember queuing up for the gig, and because Coco is just a club, it's not you know it's not like a concert venue where you know big groups normally turn up. So all the kind of uh, equipment, the musical equipment, all the kind of rigging, and all of that kind of stuff was taking place you know you could see all the kind of uh, roadies kind of doing their work right in front of you really and there was a little side entrance to coco where the queue was kind of circling around and so you had members of members of the kind of backstage team chatting away with people and then i remember walk standing there and leanne Le Havis was standing right there right next to me which was really weird because you know i'm such a massive fan now and she was just standing there talking to you know whoever, uh, some one of the kind of musical directors or the producers or whatever. And uh, just thinking, looking back now, what uh, how, what I think of her is, uh, in terms of being a musical star. I thought, man, I wish I'd chatted to her because she was standing right next to me. So anyway, uh, walked into the gig, and yeah, that was the night where Prince performed for about. Well, we saw him perform for about four hours. The the more the encores, the more encores that took place the closer we got to the stage because people kept getting filtered <laughs> out because the way London operates, unfortunately, it's not a 24 hour city. It is now actually oddly, but then last year, a couple of years ago, uh, the, the uh, trains stopped running about 11, 30, 12 o'clock at night. So if you live anywhere outside London, you're in big trouble. You can't get out of London. So people were filtering out, you know, as the later the performance went and by the time you know Prince was playing the last couple of songs, I was right standing right next to him. He was on piano, uh, and I posted photos on online, which I shouldn't have been taking. But by that stage, you know, I don't think anyone cared. Um, but it was a particularly it was a particularly amazing night because he was on rare form. He brought Leanne Le Havis on stage, and 
I know other Prince fans have spoken about this and they've spoken about his last few couple of years performing live, saying there was something quite eerie about his some of his performances in the sense that it's almost as if he knew he wasn't going to be around for the next 10, 15 years. And I remember the way he introduced Leanne Havis and he, he made a real con- conscious point of kind of saying to the audience, look after her, look after her. This one's a special one. This one's a special one. Look after her. And he kept kind of putting this kind of praise on her. And at the time, I didn't really think that much of it. And then fast forward a couple of years, uh, friends of mine bought me, uh, for my birthday, they bought me tickets to go and see Leanne Le Havis at the Royal Albert Hall, which is an incredible uh, venue in London. And I wasn't really expecting much. And I promise you, she was so incredible live. And I've been a massive fan ever since, because of Prince, really, because he, him kind of introducing her to like his own audience. And it's almost as if he kind of anointed her that night and said, you know, keep an eye on her, look after her, she's very important. But it's almost as if he knew he wasn't going to be around to kind of celebrate her success, which is tragic in its own way, I guess. So that's my kind of, I mean, I've got multiple other stories I could tell you about, like going to see Prince live and then with Michael, obviously I've been a fan for however long. Um, But it's kind of posthumously where I've been connected slightly more to people who are in his inner circle, members of his family, you know, people who worked with him, people who were very close with him. It's very difficult for me to name names and say, talk about who and what, because when you're trying to operate in a, pressure group kind of environment you don't want to kind of say oh this person told me this or that person told me this you just need to you just need people to know that you know (laughs) (laughs) there you go you know what i mean so that's that Mm -hmm. all right well cool well jamin do you want to sort of uh fill in some uh stories that we may maybe haven't heard uh you say on the show before oh look i don't i don't know if i've got a lot of stories that people haven't heard but i i do want to just say that you know my my uh I guess the highlights of my um, time as being a Michael Jackson fan, especially, um, is definitely the times I've spent um, in the last two years with Q and, and Charles and yourself, Paul, and and just people in general, just putting the show together. And um, I've had so much fun doing it. And there's definitely no end in sight to what we're doing with the MJ cast. And we're just trying to get bigger and stronger and better with every episode we do. And, you know, times like speaking with, um, you know, Taj Jackson, Michael's nephew, uh, speaking with Tom Mesero, his defense attorney during his criminal trial, all of these really, really um, amazing people that that knew Michael and wor- and worked with him or were related to him, or so, you know, people that saw him doing what he did in the studio, like uh, people like Brad Sunderberg or Rob Hoffman, hearing their stories, being on the line with them, talking with them about their times with Michael and their contributions to him as well, and that's something we often forget is that you know Michael was an incredible artist. Uh, by himself, but Michael Jackson was also, as a, as a musical product, all of these different other people that worked with him as well. And hearing from them and hearing how they contributed to the amazing product that is Michael Jackson that people can go and buy and listen to um, and enjoy is, is really, really special. And um, I know my friendships with with people like Q and Charles and, and um, yourself, Paul, and all of these relationships that I've got with people have have strengthened and grown so much through this show. And I'm so grateful that that I've had the opportunity to do it. And yeah, it's been a, a really it's a real blessing, I think, in my life. Um, in terms of Prince, I can't top anything 
any anything anyone said on this panel by a long shot. But like I've said earlier, um, I'm just at the beginning of my Prince journey, and I can't wait to connect with with you guys even more to learn more about uh, Prince. Awesome. Well, you've got plenty of stuff to so go on based on these last episodes. You can go and explore. <laughs> it's almost like we must, uh, we we all envy you because you get to experience so much that uh, that you haven't experienced before. I mean, I guess if you can imagine being a Michael fan who hasn't experienced oh, everything that you've heard oh. and seen before, it's pretty exciting to be at the beginning of that journey in a way. Um, which is kind of great because a lot of a lot of fans pretty much came to to, to Michael and now with Prince you know when they passed away so it's kind of an interesting demographic that uh, the amount of you know people that that are becoming fans and discovering this music is is amazing Do 
Hi, this is Rob Hoffman, studio musician and engineer with Michael Jackson, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. In in the Michael Jackson fan world, obviously there's this, uh, I guess, uh, phenomenon of so many. It's a massive influx of fans that have come after 2009, particularly very young fans. Um, yeah. You know, into the social media world. Is it the same with Prince? Are you seeing in the last year or so a yes. lot of new fans? Yes, Ab- definitely. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, one one statistic that may actually surprise you, um, and 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 so a lot of Michael uh, fans listening to the show, is um, th- that apparently more Prince music was sold in the six months or or, or you know the three months, sorry, uh, after Prince's death. Then Michael music was sold in the three months after his death. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is, I mean, you can chalk that up to there being a lot more Prince music available, perhaps, um, or, you know, a different musical climate in terms of how people consume music. But that, you know, it, it's an interesting statistic. And a lot of people wouldn't have foreseen that. As, uh, as a staff member and moderator of Prince.org, it's been very jarring. I had posted on the site every day, probably for the last 12 years. And there was a very tight knit community. Everybody knew everybody else, kind of everybody had, you know, their little cliques and formations and, and people they were close with and where everybody stood on different issues. Even if you didn't agree with them, you, you knew where, you know, what different people's perspectives were on stuff. And I, I even posted it on the forum recently. I said, cause we had a discussion about it and I said, it's very weird to me to have a discussion uh, or to have a thread that's open. And as a moderator, I can obviously see everybody's sign updates and for everybody's sign updates to be post April 21st, 2016. Yeah. And I got a lot of flack for it. I got a lot of flack for it because people misunderstood what I was saying. They had a lot of people angrily replying to me saying, Oh, I've been a fan for X amount of years. I just haven't posted on Prince.org before. I wasn't registered before. And I was like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I'm saying it's a stark difference in, this pivotal part of the fan community that's different now than it was before he died. I'm not yeah. making any judgments against anyone, but it's been, it's been weird. And I think, I think a lot of those fans will, um, I mean, I, I, I did make one criticism when I said that and I said, it's, it's, I don't agree with the people that are coming here that have registered after he died that are only talking about his death and not talking about his music. Mm-hmm. And, uh, because that absolutely happened as conspiracy theories gone wild as as it was with michael uh it's been the same with prince you know people saying oh he was murdered by this guy or that guy mm. or shady record executives murdered him and, da, 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 and like millions and millions of different theories please don't tell me the prince is still alive uh people are out oh there. that one yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, we got God. that one too we got we got yeah. that one too we got that one too <laughs> yeah. I think what you what you see on Twitter as well quite a lot as like the people I follow on Twitter etc is that the people that were like already MJ fans for like ages and ages and ages actually started getting interested in Prince after he died a lot mm. of these people did yeah. wow. and what I think is that on like on one side I really appreciated that people actually like show interest in his work and things like that but then I would think that why wouldn't you have done it when he was still alive? Because like if you were like in the community with me and like with other people that actually like Prince as well, you could have shown interest like in him while he was still alive because you could have actually had the chance to interact with him. Like you would have never had to have had with Michael because he wasn't there anymore when we started getting older, as in the fans that are around my age show. It's like from the age of 15 to like 20, 21, 22, 23, those kind of ages. Yeah. Yeah, and and also 
um, you'll be familiar with this old chestnut. There is the uh, prince was killed by the Illuminati crew. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one, yeah. Definitely, yeah. So I think you know, I think that that stuff is going to settle down uh, over time. Um, but it has been it has been difficult, um, particularly since Prince did not uh, leave a will. Yeah. Um, so that whole topic has just been now discussed ad nauseum. Um, every yeah. possible angle to explore has has been explored. It's you know, I mean, it's it's still it is still very unclear um, what's happening with with the estate. Um, I think ultimately it's gonna, you know, it's all gonna go to his half siblings and his one full sibling, which is uh, a tiger. Um, but the absence of a will has been a big sticking point and the mm. source of much discussion, as well as um, the one thing that I would like to point out that's, that I've said quite a lot um, since he passed away, that is the main difference between Prince's death and, and Michael's death, is that unlike in California, uh, where Michael passed away, in Minnesota, the law says that the coroner only has to reveal the cause of death and no other details about the body. So... When Michael died, you had the, all this clarification about, you know, his, his state of health. Um, all the people that didn't believe that he had a skin condition were silenced because it was clear as day in the autopsy report. With Prince, we don't have that. We know that he died of this accidental fentanyl overdose, yeah. and that's all we know. Um, so there's been lots of talk about, you know, whether he was sick, why he was taking these strong painkillers in the first place, and all that stuff we we, mm. we, we don't know about because we don't have those details from an autopsy report. Yeah. And that's been difficult uh, as well. The only people that know that is the family, and if they choose not to say anything, then we may never know these details. And we should respect that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've kind of already touched on this topic that uh, that we we're going to get to, you know, in regards to the passing of both Michael and Prince, um, and we're talking about the legacy in particular, and 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 how similar in some ways, you know, the circumstances around their passing was. Um, does anyone want to sort of share their thoughts on uh, on that, just about um, how they feel? <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to discuss here. Maybe we'll sort of keep it brief. But uh, I mean, do we do we see it as a as as a, as a tragedy in both cases? Do we see it as well? Uh, definitely tragedies. Absolutely tragedies. Um, yeah. I mean, they're just two of the biggest, greatest, most celebrated artists. I think the world has ever seen probably i mean yeah. because of the, of the way information travels now because of computer technology because of the way media can travel around the world everyone in the world would have known who michael jackson was i'm not sure that would have been the case for the beatles or elvis or anyone else who mm. lived before him um it's a tragedy for obviously for their families it's a tragedy for the people involved it's a tragedy for the world that doesn't get to kind of see what else they might have been able to contribute to the world but i i will ha have to put my name in the ring and say i'm i'm not very comfortable with the way both of them have passed away and i'm i'm never yeah. going to be convinced that these guys just accidentally you know passed away I, that's just me uh, I, I mean that's 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 that that's, fair, that's fair enough that sam well um, yeah that may uh, well be the case and it might well have happened but I just, that's, that's absolutely a valid point to um, to have. Um, but one one thing that I would like to point out is a very poignant picture that I saw today. 
which was comparing the lethal dose of, of heroin compared to fentanyl, which is what killed Prince. And the fentanyl lethal dose was literally like grains of sand, like half a dozen grains of sand. So it's absolutely possible that, you know, that's a very easy accidental uh, method of, of death. Um, that's not to say that, you know, there's, there's not reason to look into things further. Um, but, you know, that, that is one point that's worth talking about, I think. Well, I think the else? thing with the thing with Prince's death is that it it makes no it makes no sense to me because we'd seen him so recently, and he'd been in such good shape. That's the thing. I mean, yeah. as as me and Sam have spoken about, you know, that show at Coco that was a marathon show, and that was after he'd already performed a show, and. Yeah. The idea, you know, I, you know, if you want to see Michael perform on Painkillers, just Google the private footage of the of the first night at Madison Square Gardens. That's what that's what Michael. That's what a performer looks like under the influence of painkillers. He could barely stand up. He was slurring his words. He couldn't sing properly. It was devastating. You know, we're watching somebody stand in front of us for hours, performing razor sharp you know, playing these intricate guitar solos, which are like the best, you know, he's one of the best guitarists in the world. He's not missing a note. He's singing beautifully. He's dancing incredibly well. And it's very difficult to believe that at that time he was suffering from an addiction to such a powerful painkiller. And so I think, I think where the conspiracy theories come from is that people can't understand because of this lack of clarity and this lack of detail, it, we need to know, you know, what happened? What happened between us being stood in front of him, watching him perform like that in such a short space of time to him dying of a, an overdose of this incredibly powerful painkiller? And the other thing, of course, is that his local newspaper, the Star Tribune, has reported and has not been challenged by anybody in authority that when he was found, his clothes were on inside out and backwards. That's um, that that's actually uh, that is true. That, that that's the case, but it's not true that it hasn't been challenged. This is not massively public information, uh, but Lala Escarzega, who was very close to Prince for a number of years and appeared in several music videos, both released and unreleased, said that that wasn't uncommon. That he would sometimes wear clothes backwards because he preferred the way they looked. Um, yeah. And she's got no reason to lie about that. Um, she's a very credible um, source of information. She, you know, as I said, very close to Prince for a number of years. But yeah, that's, that's, you know. Well, are you buying, is. are you buying into this theory that he had been hopelessly addicted for years? Because the media line is that he'd been addicted for decades, but I just cannot believe that the guy who has stood literally feet in front of me performing to that standard mm. such a short time before, I just can't, I just can't believe it. I think he had yeah. periods of time where he was and he wasn't, which was a similar, similar situation with Michael at different points. Um, he absolutely had very serious hip damage for a number of years. There was very, there was several credible reports in 2010 and 2011 that he desperately needed a hip replacement surgery. It was discussed on the org ad nauseum six, seven years ago. Morris Day had the similar procedure and had spoken about recommending that Prince have the same procedure that he had. 
and you know whether you know he was dealing with it one way or another but it was a serious amount of pain that he had been in for at least seven or eight years possibly longer um there's footage i'm not sure what year it's from I believe the early 2000s, it, it came out on TMZ recently. It's on YouTube. It may even have been from the late 90s where he is standing by an elevator, uh, leaning on his cane, and he is very clearly in a lot of pain and doesn't want to be on camera. It's very, very obvious looking at that footage that he is leaning on it because he is in extreme amounts of pain. Um, mm. so and what are your thoughts on the lack of a will? I don't, I don't think it's out of character for Prince. And that's based on not just my, my personal knowledge of him, but conversations I've had with people like Jill Jones and his second wife, Manuela, who uh, I've become quite close to after, you know, being in the memorial uh, program. And they've said that they don't think it's out of character for him either. He would regularly, you know, not make decisions that were fantastic from a business perspective just because that's the way he was. He would credit people for songs that they had nothing to do with. He wouldn't credit people on songs that they did have something to do with. He would, you know, release songs under aliases, as we all know, and pretend to even his publishing companies and people looking after <laughs> his royalties that he had nothing to do with these songs. In terms of business decisions, he did things his own way, and we love him for that, but it also many times made absolutely no sense. So. Yeah. He, he was also very much in denial about many things um, because of the way he was. And it's not it's not out of character, I would say, for him to just not acknowledge death at all to the point where not writing a will makes it real. Um, mm. And that's how do I feel. You, do you believe he was terminally ill? I think it's possible. Um, I think it is possible. Uh, I think it's a... If that was the case, it's something that happened in the last two years. And the reason I, I say that is, A, the themes on the Artificial Age album, the affirmations, this this whole theme of, you know, disassociated reality and, and different realities and, and things like that. Songs like Way Back Home um, kind of point to that direction. The fact that the level of candidness he displayed at the piano and microphone shows discussing vanity who we hadn't mm. talked about in years uh, and, and and things like that. The fact that he went to vanity's uh, private memorial service, which Apollonia and Jill spoke about. He, he saw Jill and Susan Moonsey and Apollonia at these, at this event, people he hadn't seen in 20 and 25 years. And we're talking about a person that did not attend his own parents' funeral. Prince did not go to his mother's funeral or his father's uh, in the early 2000s. Why did he go to Vanities this year um, if, if mm. he didn't want to take the opportunity yeah. to see people that he had not seen in 20 years? Um, well, I mean, the, I mean, I know people that went to the, um, the very first piano shows at Paisley and who came back very upset and saying that they believed he was dying. Yeah. Um, they said that he'd lost enormous amounts of weight and that it, the, the shows had been incredibly morbid. Were you there? Did you go? I didn't. Um, I, I saw Ben. Uh, ben is the founder of Prince.org. Maybe three or four days after those Paisley shows, he flew to London um, and, and I hung out with him at that time. He, we did have a conversation where, uh, you know, we discussed that his behavior was out of character 
in, in terms of the stories he was telling, the fact that these shows were chronological. He started by playing the Batman theme, the first song that he learned to play on piano, um, mm. and, and ran through a lot of things chronologically. Um, and then when the memoirs were announced, we had on the org and, and in private, lots of us had several conversations about why as well, because this is a man who has absolutely refused to acknowledge his past on more occasions than not. He always said, I don't look back, I look forward. He, he mm. didn't go to the revolution reunion two years ago. You know, all that stuff. He, he didn't want to know. He didn't want to know about his past. So now to suddenly be writing a memoir, to be telling stories about people that died 20 years ago, like Chick Huntsbury, his bodyguard. You know, he told that story about him and, and Chick and, and Vanity and all that stuff. This was a marked change in behavior in the last year, the last 18 months since Artificial Age came out. Um, and, and we heard songs like Way Back Home. Um, people were, were talking about that since that time. Mm. Um, so, yeah. It's also interesting to think about the whole concept of doing the piano and a microphone shows was in a way you could, I mean, maybe we're just reading too much into it now in hindsight, but it's almost like, it's like, what haven't I done or what's, what's a way to sort of mm. do something that I really need to do that I haven't yet done. It's almost like he kind of bowed out gracefully in, in the strange way. And, and like I was talking about in the earlier show in part one, having attended those piano and a microphone shows, you know, the last shows that I saw of him um, was must have been I, know, I think it's only like two months maybe before um, he passed away and yeah. there was no clue like as I said those last shows that I saw he was some of the best shows I'd ever seen him and I've seen 22 shows in total and he was doing things and performing in a way that made me think it doesn't get any better than this and i'm like mm. wow I, I i almost didn't go to these shows because i thought look i've seen him so many times and when i went to so many shows at the 21 nights i thought okay i, I gotta stop spending money on prince and i've seen him enough and if he comes back do i really need to see him again maybe just once and then of course i said no i'm going to all four shows in in sydney but there was just no indication that he was you know, declining from based on the performances. Like he was as strong and um, incredible as as I'd ever seen. Um, that's the feeling I had at the time, and that's certainly the feeling in in the audience. It was just incredible shows. And I guess we should sort of talk a little bit about Michael as well. I mean, all we've got to go on really is or initially was was the footage that was presented to us and this is it to say well this is mm. what he was doing yeah. and obviously there's a lot more behind the scenes information that's come out the contrast for me between that is that michael suffered from uh clever editing to cover up the fact that he was very sick that was not done by him that was done after he passed and people were trying to manipulate the situation after he had already passed away whereas i think prince was very good at himself covering up what was wrong the the official pictures that he released around the final shows the atlanta ones the last shows that he did are very cleverly uh, photoshopped and edited and if you contrast those with some of the candid pictures from those shows he is very clearly ill at that time when did we see him charlie when roundhouse was what 2015 uh, no, Roundhouse was June 2014. I last saw him January 2015 at Coco at the. It was um. Autism it was February. I, 
I was I was at was that it? show as well. It was February. Yeah, it was it was Autism early February. Rock. Oh, okay. Yeah. February. See, the reason I asked because we were at at the Roundhouse. We were standing six feet away from him, and you know the people I was with. He performed for about two and a half hours, and he was very dynamic, very kind of animated, mm. uh, really into the show. Um, and the people I was with, one of the women said, um, "It's amazing how fit and healthy he is." And I, mm. I made the joke. I made the joke that you know, when I get to, when I get to that age, I wish I I was that fit. To which yeah, the, every, to, to which, to which was... the response was, "I wish you were that fit now." <laughs> Every, everyone was talking about it just before he arrived in Australia. There was, you know, I don't know if you saw, they sent out his, you know, his passport photo and say, look how amazing he looks. And there was all this talk about how he looks now with the Afro is almost exactly the same as how he looks on the For You album, his first record. It's like, wow, has he aged at all? And everyone was talking about how amazing he looked. And I was like literally at the foot of the stage for the last time I saw him right at the front because everyone sort of stood up. I was in the third or fourth row, but then everyone kind of migrated just to stand at the front during the last couple of encores where he was just jamming and continuing and he started singing songs like Paisley Park and all this sort of stuff. And you're like, wow. Um, and I saw him right up close and he was smiling and he was happy and he was feeling the music. And I just remember thinking, this is incredible. And not because I go to a lot of concerts and unfortunately most of the music artists that I like had their time and I'm trying to sort of go, well, I'll see them now better than not seeing them at all. 90% of the time you go, you sort of squint your eyes a bit and go, oh yeah, I guess it's them. It might've been good to see them in their heyday, but it's a shame. Whereas I never felt that with Prince. Every time right up until the, the very last show, I always thought, wow. He, I don't for a second go, oh, it's a shame he's, you know, it's not yeah, 20 well, years ago. Yeah. When we saw him, and I, I was saying we were that close, he was wearing, towards the end of the show, he was just wearing this kind of black long sleeve T-shirt. And he'd been on stage for about six hours at that point because obviously he performed the previous gig. So, so the shirt was sweated through and he was ripped. He was physically yeah. in fantastic condition. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you hear these stories that, you know, he was wasting away and whatnot. It's just so difficult to believe. I mean, Michael Jackson, you know, whatever oh, conspiracy theories, everything that we've said has turned out to be true. Like, you know, he passed away. All the video that we've seen has been edited, dubbed. The will that he apparently signed in Los Angeles was signed on a day when he was in New York. You know, he, he, he apparently signed a will giving Sony control of all of his catalog but mm. on the same day he happened to be in new york protesting sony saying they were killing his career and conspiring against him i mean you know you don't you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to believe yeah. what we believe you know well, you to can see, what see it you can see it in the footage i mean and if you watch any of that this is it stuff your first thought is wow he's so thin like it's, yeah, it's absolutely. Just, you don't look at it and go, oh, yeah, you know. I mean, when I first saw some of that stuff, I thought, you know, his physical appearance, you know, facially, I thought, wow, he looks definitely looks a lot better than he did, say, in Invincible era, mm -hmm. um, yeah. where I thought it was, I thought he was kind of almost past the point of no return there. I thought, okay, we've sort of reached a point where physically he's struggling and, and it was a bit sort of hard to watch. But it, it's almost like he somehow came back in a way that mm -hmm. I thought, wow, if you skipped or chopped out that whole Invincible era, you'd believe this is how he would have ended up looking at that age sort of after yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. Um, 
after 97, you know, sort of mm-hmm. blood on the dance floor. But, you know, so physically, he looked pretty pretty good, you know, facially, mm-hmm. but he was just so thin and you can look at it mm-hmm. and you can just tell that something's not the thing, the, the thing that troubled me straight away when I saw this is it, and I think maybe for most people they, they wouldn't have noticed this, but... I'd already spent a lot of time myself editing live video uh, of, of my own band over the years. Um, yeah. The amount of cuts and chops was blatantly obvious to me straight away. Um, mm. Even even in ones where he appeared to be in the same uh, you know outfit, where you would think there doesn't need to be a chop, it, there yeah. would be several yeah. ones uh, yeah. in the space of a very small space of time. Yeah, you're right. He sort of migrates from one end of the stage to the other you know so yeah. it looks like they've just changed angle but actually if you're if you're eagle-eyed you can see that he's mm. he's about 15 feet over from where he was yeah. some of you know so. this already but video editing film editing that's kind of my profession and i've done a lot of this sort of stuff so when i first saw it i actually saw the premiere at the at the, at the um the nokia center they had the big premiere there and you know, everyone was there and everything. But seeing it on the big screen, it was like, wow. But even on this huge screen, there was all these cuts to all these really low-res shots, low-resolution. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching it going, what's going on here? And I thought we were going to see this video of the final night at the Staples Center. But 90% of that footage is from the forum in LA, which yeah. was, you know, however yeah. often before, mm-hmm. which is where Prince Weeks played before. for those 21 mm-hmm. nights. And yeah, some of that stuff's pretty good. But most of the stuff that's from those final nights is either you know it's put into like split screen boxes or it's really low resolution uh and you're just sort of going yeah something's not right here very manufactured very choppy that cut out sections and you can even hear the poor edits i think it's maybe it's jam or something where they or no is it is it human nature something where they get the lyrics wrong because they've yeah, cut it halfway they through a yeah. verse yeah. Yeah. so it doesn't rhyme and you're like what is going on so yeah definitely it's interesting to think about the, the similarities in, in, in it's not, and it's Prince and it's Michael, but you know, it's also Elvis and all of these artists that, you know, mm-hmm. you, you've seen, they've all kind of gone down a path. I mean, Elvis was very obvious. You see, you see those last performances he did, you mm-hmm. can tell he was right on death's door. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but it, but it, it does disturb me how this seems to be a common story. And, and I remember Lisa Marie talking about how she was worried that Michael was going to end up the same way as her father. And mm-hmm. then now Prince, I just never thought, and again, I can't say it enough. When I saw Prince at these shows, I just never in a million years thought that he wouldn't be around for more shows no. in many years to come. And I was thinking about how, I mean, to be honest, like seeing the piano and a microphone shows, part of me for the first show, I was a little disappointed that I didn't get to see him with a guitar because I love that so much. And I was like, wow, this is a different side of him, which I can really appreciate. But I'm like, ah, oh, I really want to hear some more of that, of that guitar <laughs> rock prints at some point. I thought, oh, well, next time he does a big show, you know, yeah, yeah, there was yeah. just no, everyone had a feeling that mm. he was like, well, wow, he he's this age. It amazing he's going to go on for a long time so he always said the right things he always you know talked about his vegan lifestyle he always pointed to a particular you know who's that author he pointed to who gave that ted talk video about he was asked you know how have you avoided the same fate as michael jackson and he points to is it the woman who does that what's that book he points to come on casey you pray know, love he pray, pray yeah, love he yeah. points to the author of that who gives a ted talk and she talks about creativity and nutrition and you know living healthy lifestyles and whatnot so he always seemed to have 
I remember having a debate again with Nicholas Payton on uh, the jazz musician. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't say jazz, it'll kick mass. The black American music musician who uh, we we had a, a debate about Michael Jackson and Prince. And he said about Prince, he said Prince had a better get out, you know, uh, than Michael did. He, he had a better ex- exit plan than Michael did. Whereas, you know, two or three years down the line, he passes away in almost identical circumstances. In terms of this kind of struggle and, and, and addiction and all, and all that kind of stuff, I think it's very clear to me that Prince was fighting it. And I think when you're in the depths of a, of a fight, to, especially to the point where, you know, the day before he passed away, they were calling in you know, specialists, you know, addiction specialists and whatnot. I think you have good days and you have bad days. You have good weeks and you have bad weeks. So it's not surprising to me that there were some weeks where it seemed like he he was doing better and some weeks where it seemed like he was doing worse. The first time I remember being concerned about his appearance was at New Year, last New Year. He did a private show, uh, you know, for a very large fee for Roman Abramovich, the uh, the football um, you know manager owner. And there were paparazzi pictures of him getting off the plane where he was clearly frail and in pain. And then you had Paisley Park, the first piano and microphone shows not long after that. But then there were there were periods, as you say, Paul, like in, in Australia, um, where it seemed like he was doing better again. And that talk died down for a bit, only to pick up when he got back to the US. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, the Atlanta shows were initially postponed because he was saying that he had the flu. Uh, which we now know was was not the case. He was in you know, the mm. depths of his, his struggle. Uh, his chefs have talked about how he was not eating. He, he couldn't hold a meal down. He had flu-like symptoms, et cetera, et cetera, for two or three months um, prior to his death. I think that what we always had as being both Michael and Prince fans is that after Michael passed away, Prince was just always there. He was like the solid rock that you could still lean on. Like he was always there. He wasn't doing anything crazy. And like, we didn't really know anything about him, maybe like being on painkillers and things like that. He was just always there. And so I think that's why Prince's death came as a really big shock for me as well, because that sort of thing falls away. Like you have like your two big idols and then one of them passes away just at a quite a very very young age and then the other one passes away at relatively a young age as well mm-hmm. and so then both of those people kind of fall away and you kind of feel like you're sort of there to stand on your own from now on that you don't really have mm-hmm. anyone that is physically and like mentally there that you can actually look up to and that you can like yeah. still go see and learn from i said that to charlie actually that you know however much i love michael there, there was a horrible inevitability about the way and the circumstances around how he was going to pass away. And so, yeah. you know, it, it happened. It was very tragic and it was very painful to deal with. But with Prince, oddly, I felt even worse because, yeah. you know, you just didn't, you know, he he was like our golden child. He was the guy who got away and like, lived, you know, he did Purple Rain. He broke broke every record in the book, but got out as well he wasn't being held back by anyone and you know he'd no. talk about how he was free of contracts he was free to do what he wanted to do he's free to be his own man but then he still passed away in you know similar circumstances so that really hurt to be honest
Hey, this is Taj Jackson of 3T, and you're listening to the MJ Cast. Well, that's a good way to actually lead into the next topic, which is about the music industry and about artistic independence. And this was something that Prince really stood for. And in a way, a lot of, the, a lot of Michael's career was something that he strived for. Does anyone want to sort of discuss some of those elements of, of the careers of uh, both Michael and Prince in terms of, you know, from a record label perspective? Maybe Charles, have you got a, a thought on that? Uh, obviously, they both took on their record labels. They both, in a sense, they, I, I, to be honest, I think um, Prince, Prince to me is more of a hero on that front because he really did go to war and what he didn't have the benefit of which Michael did, Michael had the benefit that he was not the first one. Whereas Prince, really, he was the first major artist to do that on such a scale, you know. And, and some of the things he did, he, I mean, he really was a warrior. He was such a warrior. The way he was just unafraid to do things which he knew he would be ridiculed for, 
and which he was ridiculed for, from writing slave on his face to changing his name. He would be forced to go and do these TV appearances, so he'd do them with a you know, with a, a, a towel wrapped around his head or something, and then he refused to yeah. say anything. You know, it was mm. it was kind of he did it with humor, but at the same time he was making a very serious point and he did forge serious change. You know, I mean Prince was one of the first to um to start selling music online independently. He really did pave the way for iTunes. You know that he was operating in in an age of where the internet was being used for piracy, and it was killing everybody else's record sales. He and a few others, I think David Bowie took it very early, took the initiative and went online. Was um, was monetizing the internet rather than losing money through the internet, and um, in in many ways he was a visionary, and he was always coming up with new ways of distributing his music. You know, some more successful than others. He tried it through newspapers. He tried it through giving the CDs away with the concert tickets. And, you know, there were varying degrees of success, but it, but he was always prepared to be bold. And he was always prepared to do something that, that other people might say was crazy. I mean, Michael's struggle against Sony was very different in the sense that the motives, see, with, with Prince... The argument with Warner Brothers centered largely on them. He felt they were inhibiting him creatively because he wanted to release music at a faster rate than they were prepared to allow him. They wanted him to release an album, promote the album for a year, and then release another album. Whereas his thinking was, by the time that album's been released, I've already recorded the next one. Um, with Michael... He, with Michael, you could kind of, it depends on what stance you take, whether you believe that Sony was out to destroy him and steal his catalogue. But if if you assume that that's not the case, you can understand why they would be aggravated that he's taking years and years to record an album and then it comes out and it doesn't do very well. I don't think Michael went about his fight with Sony in a very sensible way, pegging it to racism, claiming it was racist, was a very bad idea. I don't think really there was any validity to that claim. He claims that he heard, or he claimed that he heard Tommy Mottola make a racist comment about an artist, but that doesn't mean that his situation at the hands of Sony is racist. He had no evidence of that. And ultimately the whole thing blew up in his face. He didn't really win. And um, he was ridiculed globally. He also was not in any fit state to be taking on Sony. He was in the depths of an addiction which was compromising him massively. That addiction was part of the reason he was incapable of properly recording or releasing or promoting the album. So there were two very different situations. I mean, Prince, to me, is, is a hero for what he did taking on the industry. Michael, I feel that episode in his career was, you know, whether Sony was right or wrong, the way Michael handled it, in my opinion, was poor. Probably mm. down to poor advice, a poor choice of partners in uh, pursuing the the claim. But, you know, Michael was heroic to me for other reasons. You know, the just the very fact of, of 
you know, coming through 93, coming through the trial. But, I mean, Prince's influence was just enormous in terms of in terms of shaping the industry. I think, in a sense, Michael was from a different era. Prince was very forward thinking. Prince was thinking, if I sell one million albums via my own website, I've made seven million dollars. All Michael wanted to do was sell a hundred million albums. He was living in he was living twenty years ago in in his head, I think, and um, and he was not geared up mentally or physically for the fight. It's I don't think Michael was that self-serving in 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 his battle with sony i don't think he was i i genuinely do believe he he believed the music industry on the whole was racist and you know the the evidence that he provided gives you is pretty solid um he talked about you know jackie wilson what happened to him we talked about the 2020 documentary uh, on the last show we were on uh, about jackie wilson um yeah, I mean, you know, Michael did make some comments which were not really borne out by the truth. I know that he said, um, for instance, he made a comment about James Brown has to go on tour all the time because otherwise he'd go broke. He said that during his speech at the thing with Al Sharpton. That was not true. Mr. Brown was very well off and um, and he toured primarily because he was bored and because if he didn't, he'd get fat and die, um, which actually... The reason he died is because he took a, a two-month break from touring because he, he contracted an illness and uh, the people around him said that had he been on tour, he would have gone straight to a doctor because he would never have allowed himself to put on a bad show for uh, for his customers. But he, um, because he wasn't on tour, he said, oh, I can't be bothered, and then it just got worse and worse, and then he died. Um, I just, I just want to pull that back to... Um... Um, um, to Prince and 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 Michael and and their battles and and whatnot, I really think that Prince, in some ways, was a victim of sometimes hearing what he wanted to hear, and also getting bored very quickly. And when I say that, what I mean is that he had signed this massive deal with Warner's on the back of wanting a bigger deal than Janet and Michael who had massive and Madonna who'd had massively publicized huge deals. And and he immediately went to the press saying that he had the biggest deal in music history, which pissed off both his own people and Warner's because it wasn't true. It was on the basis that every record sell 5 million records, which most of his records had not done to that point. He had a plan to do that, of course, and he, succeeded in that plan at first with diamonds and pearls which links to michael because he succeeded in that plan by hiring frank DeLeo to promote diamonds and pearls um of course at this time frank had you know come off doing bad and and knowing how the industry was at that point of time and so diamonds and pearls was a massive massive hit record of course prince got very bored with that whole situation a year later Frank told him what singles should be released from the love symbol and Prince flatly ignored him and chose completely different singles. And therefore, and DeLeo left and the album did not sell as many records as uh, Diamonds and Pearls. And that's when things got ugly between Prince and Warner Brothers. <laughs> and what Prince says is really interesting because he talks about people like Frank DeLeo and he says, you know, when, you're, when you're, you make friends with particular types of people, everyone wants to be your friend and you're in the charts and you, you'll have hit, hit records everywhere and everyone wants to be around you. 
And then when you don't have those friends in your life, suddenly you can't get your records played on the radio. Suddenly you're not in the chart. Suddenly, you know, no one knows your latest song or your latest album or the name of your particular songs or whatever. Uh, that's, that's, I mean, that's actually something Prince rallied against, isn't it? That, that, that sort of kind of, yeah, that's that's ab- that's absolutely music that's, that's, that's absolutely true. But I think that when he signed that deal, he, you know, was perfectly fine with committing to a, a long, long commitment, which he, a year later decided that he didn't want to do anymore and that he was bored with, and changed his mind a million times as he as he often did. But when you when you have signed that kind of deal and you've made that kind of commitment, it's not easy to go back on it. I think Prince fully believed that he could sell five to ten million records with every album he put out for you know the next five ten years, but he didn't want to continue making the kind of the kind of finding that middle ground with what record labels and promoters wanted him to do with what he wanted to do. As always, if he had a if he had a song that he felt was you know a massive single, then he'd put it out even if nobody else agreed. And to his credit, that often worked. It worked with the most beautiful girl in the world, but several other times it didn't work, uh, which I think was the case with the with the love symbol. I think most fans would agree that the complete wrong singles were picked from that album. With that kind of contract, you're also at the mercy of the record company, aren't you? You, you know, they could they could literally bankrupt you anytime they yeah. want by not promoting yeah, your absolutely. records, not getting your records played on the radios. Um, absolutely, but there was always that push and pull with Prince and Warners. I mean, he, of course, had them destroy every copy of the Black Album as it was on trucks being sent to stores. And you have to have a certain amount of, of pull with the label for them to even entertain that notion most artists would not get away with that so there were times where you know he he did ignore great things that the label had done for him that they wouldn't have done for almost any other artist and you know there were other times where you know the opposite situation was was true and they didn't do what he wanted and you know it, it caused a lot of problems so. well i think you know what what's uh, common between michael and prince is that they both they both only took on the industry when it was beneficial to them. So these were not the, you know, neither of them was out there fighting for independent artists. It was only, I'm now in a situation that's irritating me. So I'm now going to become true. a champion. See, I don't that's true of Michael. That's it. Well, where was Michael when George Michael was fighting Sony? What was well, I think where Michael was when he bought Sony ATV. First, the first thing he wanted to do was give Little Richard his catalogue back because of the systematic kind of uh, oppression that Little Richard suffered. So the uh, the story goes that Catherine, Catherine, I believe, was on the board at Sony ATV. Oh, sorry, I say Sony, was on the board of ATV when Michael bought it. And she had said to Michael, you need to do this uh, for Little Richard because, you know, the music industry has treated him like crap. And Michael's original intention was to give him his catalogue back turns out he couldn't do that because of a lawyer or some legal issue that one of his lawyers couldn't facilitate i can only imagine who that might be um and uh so then michael said well we'll get him on the board of directors we'll give him a job at atv and then he can manage his own catalog and you know he can place his music where he wants it to be placed on whichever tv advert or whatever and then little little richard didn't want to work so <laughs> so I don't know exactly what happened to his catalogue, but that was Michael's original intention. And that was when, 1985, 86? Wasn't Michael complicit at the same time in 
screwing over other artists, didn't he? For instance, order Sony to um, sabotage a release by Terence Trent Darby. It was um, it was Branko, wasn't it? He he said that Branko was not allowed to represent uh, Terence Trent Darby, and then said that mm-hmm. either either I stay your client or Terence stays your client, but not both. <laughs> Hmm. Right, I see. So, yeah, yeah so is at the same time, you know, and he also, uh, Michael, stitched up Jermaine by stealing his producers. Uh, mm-hmm. So he was not above interfering with artists who were on a lower rung than himself. He, and it was the same with Prince, you know, and I'm not saying that mm-hmm. what they did, what they did in taking on the industry was not good. Because these were issues that needed to be raised, but it is, it is nonetheless a common factor between them that they raised the issues only when they affected them. Whereas when they were in a position where they were untouchable and it was it was people far lower down the food chain who were being affected by these issues, they were not out there championing the cause. I don't recall Michael standing in solidarity with George Michael during the time that he was at war with Sony. But then when Michael is in trouble with Sony, suddenly he's waving around banners with George Michael's face on, years after George Michael's case has already been concluded. So, you know, there, there is an element that these cases were self-serving. By the same token, Prince did keep Jill Jones locked in her contract for three to four years, not releasing her album and not allowing her to leave. You know, she said said that several times. Um, oh, and he he screwed the time as well, didn't he? Banned the time from using the name, the time. They had to change the name yeah, to the yeah, original seven or something. That's a more recent one. Same with the family; um, they had to change the name to F Deluxe. Um, <laughs> he did own the copyrights on those names, and I think his position was that as the creator and the person who funded and financed those projects and wrote all the songs and played all the songs, if he was not involved with them, then it was not a time album or not a family album. It's again, it's, it's very, there's a lot, there's a lot of opinions on, on, on those things. Um, but he was never very clear for his reasons, which I think hurt his his position. So a lot of people did side with the time and, and, and the family and, and felt that they should be allowed to use you know their names. But, but then you see, on the other hand, Prince did what he did do was he took up genuinely worthwhile issues. So mm, you could yes. argue, you could certainly argue Prince entered into a contract. He should have stuck by his contract. And if he didn't, then the other participant in the contract was entitled to feel cheesed off with him. But, you know, at the same time, there were issues that he raised, like ownership of masters um, and forcing artists to pay back their advances, but then not giving them the artwork. These were incredibly important issues. And And audits of of record sales in in foreign territories as well. That's that's another one I would... would um, yeah, that he, that he raised. So he he regularly spoke, uh, or at least for some period of time, he he would talk about that he had absolutely no idea how many copies of Purple Rain had been sold, because there was never proper auditing being done. And actually, I remember right about that. I remember um, when the one what was that album that came out with one more when the Number Ones album came out, mm-hmm. uh, Michael's Number Ones in two thousand three. I was aware of multiple fans on fan forums who were saying that when they got home from the record store, they would look at their receipt 
and the receipt would say that they'd bought a different album. So they were walking out of the shop with a copy of Number Ones, but their receipt would say Celine Dion or something. All right, so let's talk a little bit about um, the cultural impact that, uh, both Michael and Prince have had. I mean, obviously, we've talked a lot about you know their roles within the music industry and things they've done. Culturally, you know, they've obviously had a huge impact. Uh, does anyone want to sort of dive in there and talk a little bit how about how they feel uh, these artists have impacted, mm-hmm. you know, the world? <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a really good quote. Um, it's a very old quote by the actor Humphrey Bogart, and it's something along the lines of. Um, you're not famous until they can spell your name in Karachi, in Pakistan. Um, and I don't think that applies to anyone more than it does to Michael Jackson, because that guy was so famous uh, that he reached every single corner of the planet. There's not, I, I can't imagine there's any part of the world that doesn't know who Michael Jackson is. And I remember when he passed away, the outpouring of grief and, you know, the uh news channels went around the world and every continent almost every country people wanted to comment and have something to say and just express how much they loved him and how much he affected them i was listening i think it was to desert island discs recently do you know what desert island discs is do you have that in australia i i have no idea what that um is. oh wow <laughs> it's a very famous uh bbc radio show and uh basically they introduce celebrities and they ask celebrities to come on and talk about if they were abandoned on a on an island uh what songs would they choose to play what 10 songs would they want to have on that uh island with them that would keep them going and i think they had yo-yo ma who's the cellist is a world famous uh uh musician cellist and he talked about how much he loved michael jackson and how he wanted to be michael jackson (laughs) It's the odd thing about people people who love Michael Jackson. They wanted to be him as well. It was not. It's not that just that they were able to appreciate <laughs> appreciate him from the outside. They also wanted to be him as well. Uh, weirdly, um, and that's the, that's the one thing I'd say that separates Prince and MJ to culturally is the reach that Michael had. And I don't. I can't mm. quite put put my finger on why that is. What kind of alchemy kind of created yeah. that? amazing kind of popularity but there's something maybe it's the kind of people saw him as that kind of slightly sanitized uh pop star whereas prince was slightly Mm. more adult and more kind of uh less uh, uh, slightly more difficult to get into whereas michael was much kind of uh you know accessible uh, yeah, I think that yeah, I think that Michael is one of those artists that like any sort of generation from like really really young from the age of like 2 or 5 to like people in their 80s 90s can look up to and like understand as well because I think for Michael it's like because um a lot of his earlier stuff especially is like music that is like easier to listen to for people basically mm-hmm. and what you have with Prince is that Prince's like lyrical content it is much much more mature so I think that if you were like if you were a really young child you could still sing along to a Michael Jackson song like Don't Stop Till You Get Enough or Want to Be Starting Something or something like that because it's really light and it's just like I can imagine how like 
you would grow into Prince more once you start actually getting older and trying to get a better understanding of his lyrical content because it's a bit mm. more complex. Yeah. I'm not saying that Michael did not have really complex lyrics, but yeah. he did that throughout like his later on years. So like mm. from Dangerous on and then to History, I think History is his album with the best lyrical content. And then on Invincible, he like he kind of matured more over the years, whereas Prince, he was quite mature from the beginning. My position on on that in terms of cultural impact is that Prince influenced every generation of young musicians uh, since mm. him more than Michael did. In the sense that if there's if you're at school, if you're a kid in school, and there's a hundred kids in your year, and everyone loves Michael, and there's ten musicians in your year who all grow up to be professional musicians, then those musicians were listening to Prince mm. and studying what he was playing. And that would influence them in the types of music that they would play. And they would then go out and be professional musicians and reach different audiences of their own. And um, I think that comes down to this kind of big cult of celebrity that exists around Michael, where I think his musical innovations are sidelined in favor of his fame. They are often just underestimated. People don't Mm -hmm. see him for the competent songwriter that he was, uh, whereas they have always seen, uh, always appreciated that that side of of Prince. So that's that's the big difference to me. I mean, uh, as I was m- mentioning before, uh, I, I I attempted to write up a list of every artist that has publicly gone on record as being a big Prince fan, and it is a massive, massive list of all of all genres. I don't think that you could do that with. Uh, Michael with so many musicians where the influence is clear in the music that they are making. Mm. Th- um, potentially not, but it's important also to remember that Michael wasn't just just a musician. Like I, I'm sure if you went out and asked every choreographer or dancer in the world, they would mm. yeah, it of course. be Michael yeah. that would have influenced them it's, it, in some some different way. But um, to add to the conversation as well, I think uh, I would like to say that um, – I think what Michael spent a lot of time thinking about and doing was trying to appeal to as many people around the world as possible at any any given time yeah. with uh with a song, with an album, with a music video, whatever with his with his look and appearance and his fashion and everything. I think a lot of what Michael was doing was very much geared to appealing to as many different ethnicities and people mm-hmm. from around the world mm-hmm. at any one time, and I think he had massive success with that. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think it was necessarily for commercial purposes. I don't think it was about the money for him. I think it really ultimately came yeah. down to how could he spread uh, entertainment, love, his message to as many corners of the globe as possible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. What, what I found quite interesting just a second ago, I think Kim mentioned that uh, Michael Jackson's accessibility, and she mentioned a couple of songs. I think she said, Don't Stop Till yes. You Get Enough. And yeah. was the other one, Want to Be Starting Something? Yes. Was that the other one? Yeah. Well, the thing is, Want to Be Starting Something's very interesting, that the lyrical content is not like, you know, Girl Loves Boy or Boy Loves Girl. It's no, a very true. deep, complicated yeah. uh, lyrical it content. Yeah. Um, you know, he's talking about, you know, the press intrusion. He's talking about yeah. power. He's talking about. Uh, abortion is talking about, and then you have the kind of uh, chanting it mm, towards African the end of the song. Inspired chanting, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. chanting at the end of the song where, he, and then he's kind of 
you know, singing on top of that with like almost Martin Luther King like. Yeah, uh, I think what makes it appealing yeah. to people that song is that even if you like weren't old enough to be able to understand the message that's behind exactly. it, it's just uplifting beat. So even yeah, exactly. a kid exactly. would like it, even mm. though they would be able to understand it later on in that's, life. That's what I always thought was brilliant about yeah. Michael was that yeah. it was accessible to children. But the like yeah. black and white is a you know you play that song they'll play it on the radio as if it's you know the most innocent cutesy pop song. Yeah, they but do. The actual, but it's the actual not. Lyric yeah. content is really dark. I mean, you yeah, can do the video, yeah. and people were shocked by the video because <laughs> yeah. it, it was such a contradiction to people's ideas of what the pop song was. Yeah. And then they saw. I I, 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 str- I struggle I struggle with the lack of 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 people that that have internalized those messages properly. I feel like people are not getting Michael's message. I you know yeah. why why it's can I not have a conversation with somebody? Uh, you know, if I'm talking to somebody about black or white, as as we just mentioned that song, why can I not lead that into a discussion about the Black Panthers with ninety percent of the people that I talk about that with? Why have they not understood? It's exactly that very saying, obvious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's exactly what you said about him because he was so famous that you know it's it's what the michael jackson estate are bloody renowned for now they like yeah. reduce it they reduce michael jackson to a glove and a hat and a curl and yeah. uh, and loafers like they've reduced him to the kind of Mickey Mouse and a, character and a piece of chalk <laughs> and a piece of fucking chalk because you know they, that that's what they can sell like it's easy to sell that like charlie said to me he said you can't sell lunch boxes with stop fucking with me yes. on the on the side of them do you know what I mean you <laughs> no, can have not really girl no, is mine but, or yeah but or for people that really really want to look into michael as a person as the artist that he was then that is not interesting that is not the most interesting aspect of him to only look at that sort of thing like it's oh he's the glove yeah, it's yeah, it is. yeah it's, because it's he's so much more than that yeah, exactly. yeah. but that was the that was the fantastic contra- uh, contradiction uh, about Michael. can i just quickly say that i i referred to desert island discs earlier and I gave you the wrong artist. It's actually Lang Lang who talks about Michael Jackson. Ah, lovely. Uh, concert yeah, pianist. Yeah. And uh, he talks about wanting to be Michael Jackson when he was growing up. And that's all he cared about. And, you know, this is a world-famous pianist and classical musician. Mm. That's Michael's reach. Sorry, I just had to kind of make sure I corrected myself on that.
Hi, this is Scott Ross, lead investigator on the Michael Jackson trial, and you are listening to the MJ cast. Thank you for listening. Well, I think we've um, spoken quite a lot about uh, the impact that Michael's had culturally, but one of the, the, and both Prince and Michael, but one of the things that is a little bit of a lighter topic, but nonetheless, I think they've had such a huge impact is style and, and fashion. You know, both of these artists, and we're talking about the accessibility, particularly you know, in Michael's career and Prince mm. maybe in the earlier part of his career when he was most commercially <laughs> successful, I guess, up until around yeah. Diamonds and Pearls, style and fashion was was it. And Michael was much more accessible, certainly mm. because he mm. set these trends and he got you yeah. into and just visually and stylistically, everyone wanted to be him. And, and, and that mm. was kind of a way of getting people into the music. And then he could try and use that as you saw in his later career, to sort of spread a message and say something more important. But, um, but yeah, let's have a bit of a chat about, about stylistic influences and, and, and how we feel that they made their mark uh, in the world of, of not only just pop music and, you know, pop rock music, yeah. but just in general. <laughs> I mean, what do, people, what, do, what do people think, you know, in terms of well, yeah. style? Well, I think the first thing about Michael that you will instantly recognize that so many people have done after him and copy them with is his military style jackets. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So many people have like, yeah. like, when, as soon as he started wearing them, almost like big fashion designs and fashion brands have started recreating them, starting to like make really expensive versions of them, but also wearable versions for like, you know people like us and then what you see as well is that artists nowadays people like rihanna and beyonce bring back elements of what michael had as in terms of um like show costumes like show outfits like the the very military style things he had but also just his outfits that he would wear on like a daily basis and they bring that back into their own style to sort of Mm -hmm. you know pay tribute to michael with it but not only because of that but just because they like it so much and he made such a big statement with it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, Beyonce, uh, you know, her Super Bowl performance was a complete tribute to Michael's Super Bowl performance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even down to the kind of leather jacket with the bullets uh, on, on it. Um, so I've, I've read something really interesting many, many years ago about both of them, actually. And, you know, I grew up in the 80s, so you know, you guys didn't have to deal with a lot of the stuff that we had to deal with, with Michael Jackson and Prince. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we were growing up, when they first came out, they were, not when they first came out, but when they were first had their mega stardom success, you know, they were both loved beyond belief. But then during the mid eighties, I talked about this on the last show that you had the kind of rise of the hip hop movement and suddenly Michael Jackson and Prince weren't black enough, according to the mm-hmm. press and according to like, you know, music critic critics, they, you know, the bad album wasn't a black album for them because mm. it wasn't it wasn't a hip hop album and suddenly the only way you could be a black artist was if you were if you were a rapper if you were Chuck D Public Enemy and then later NWA and then you know Prince obviously had his own issues with hip hop and rap music and mm. you know Michael physically went through his transformation and that didn't help his cause either you know so that was a, another uh, kind of stick to beat him with and. I read someone in, wrote something in, really interesting once about both Michael Jackson and Prince and how, you know, they'd kind of taken on this kind of feminine uh, appearance, you know, wearing yeah. makeup and long yeah. hair and how mm. it had become 
when they did it, people's perceptions were yeah. so negative towards them. Yeah. And, you know, it, it was kind of used, their appearance was kind of used against them in the press. Whereas you had groups at the time like Poison and Guns N' Roses and uh, Motley Crue, who, were all, who, who all had long hair, who all wear yeah. tight, wore tight leather, who yeah. all wear, wore lots of lipstick yeah. and yeah. makeup. Their sexuality, they can't, that never, you know, th- those things were never brought into question again. No one ever thought David Lee Roth wasn't like a man's man. Do you know what no, I mean? No, exactly. And I well, think... It was, all, yeah, it was always yeah. held against Michael and Prince that they, you know, Prince, yeah, it was. such a legend. He used to go on stage with high heels. Yeah, and... I think, yeah. But you know what the beautiful thing here is? I think that they actually, like, in our day and age, they actually now, like, where they were maybe made fun of or, like, being stared at weirdly for doing that before when they were like at their peaks in the 80s like wearing makeup and wearing high heels and clothes that like sort of showed their femininity and things they mm. are praised for that now and they are examples for especially for men that want to sort of show their femininity a bit more mm, and it's so much more yeah. accepted and I think Bowie also played a really big role in that we cannot forget yeah. to mention Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. I think in, in terms of that there's always been issues to do with uh, black masculinity and how it's presented and how it's uh, you know, how the media presents it and, and whatnot. But I think a big part of that was the fact that that uh, that macho masculine shift in black music happened in 86, 87 with Public Enemy and NWA. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, that was that was the trend. You had to be hard and, and gangster and, and whatnot. But that didn't happen in rock music until Nirvana came out with Smells Like Teen Spirit in 1991, mm-hmm. at which point all of those hair metal bands like Poison mm-hmm. and, and Motley Crue were considered very passe and there was no makeup and there was no, uh, mm-hmm. you know, eyeliner mm-hmm. and, and big hair and all and all that stuff. So those kind of those shifts happened at, at, at you know, very, very far apart from each other, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which I think plays a, a big part in, in that. But the irony is that all of those early hip hop guys uh, were massive Prince Prince fans and massive Michael Jackson fans and were dressing like them mm. in that period of time up until of the explosion yeah. of Public yeah. Enemy and, and NWA, you know, to the point where a few years later when NWA broke up and Easy e released his uh, diss track, Real Motherfucking G's, about Dr. Dre, he was clowning yeah. Dre for being in the group World Class Reckon Crew and having a jerry curl and wearing eyeliner and <laughs> yeah, trying yeah. to sound like Prince. Exactly. So that's how exactly. much that had, had changed at, at that point. Yeah. But Easy yeah. was probably doing that shit too in 1985. So, <laughs> yeah, they all were. Yeah. I mean, you just look at, you guys weren't around. This is so weird for me to talk to you because <laughs> you guys weren't around things. So, you know, everyone, like when Michael Jackson came out with the kind of thriller look around 1984, 85, Everyone looked like that. Everyone was trying to look like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Look, I would imagine so, yeah. <laughs> you know, Five Star, the group that was mm. yeah, yeah. commercially successful in the yeah. UK, you know, they all looked like members of the Jackson family. You had, yeah. you know, groups in America. Uh, DeBarge. Uh, like yeah. DeBarge, <laughs> who obviously modeled on the Jacksons. You had yeah. Troop, who came out uh, years later, who... Ready for the world, you know, the, yeah. uh, the ultimate <laughs> Then you had New Edition, who were wearing <laughs> white socks. Yeah, I mean, that was the look. And then suddenly... They were the middle Wasn't. class, middle class black Americans uh, who were no longer cool once Public Enemy and Eric B and Rakim and LL Cool J. It was it, there was something very sinister about the tone of the press around that time. How they, you know, and it was usually white journalists and white press who would kind of spin the whole yeah. "You're not black enough." Yeah. These people, 
black and those people and you know that it's very offensive on multiple levels but um it is I, I often wonder how it would have turned out because obviously Michael had, had been planning this big duet with Run DMC for the bad album that never panned out. Yeah, that's right. What was that song? Crack Kills or something? Yeah. Crack Kills. Mm-hmm. Crack Kills. You have to wonder like what difference that would have uh, made because obviously mm. they were at their peak of popularity um, yeah. at that time as well. But you also recorded with LL Cool J, didn't he? Which leaked serious effect. Much later, yeah. yeah. That was Dangerous yeah. Era, I think. Oh, was it? That was, that was further down the line, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely by Dangerous, he started getting into sort of the rap elements, you know. So it sounds yeah. like that was something that was planned a little earlier, but didn't. And I guess he tried to do it with Bad, you know, with a street sort yeah, of vibe. Bad is a hip-hop, well, bad is yeah. and bad is a hip-hop, whole bad, sort of bad thing. Is Michael Jackson rapping. Like Sign of the Times is Prince rapping. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not a song where he's singing, yeah. he's actually rapping the lyrics. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think hip-hop actually, you know, was a big kind of, fork in the road for both of them yeah the irony of that is there would be no hip-hop without prince um yeah. he absolutely pioneered being one man that produced and played the you know, drum machines in in black music and, mm, and did everything yeah. on, on his own and sampling you know he was doing things that would later be considered sampling before it was a thing mm-hmm. yeah you know yeah, absolutely. yeah. And every and female hip-hop rap as well. He had female rappers and stuff. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, for a love, love, sexy album and you know yep. stuff like that. Yeah. And then Fantastic. led right into. I mean, pretty much Diamonds and Pearls was like you know it was becoming a hip-hop rap album. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, with with Tony M and the guys, it was like becoming sort of rap. Kind of coincidentally, around the same time, Michael was getting rappers in on the Dangerous record because it was, you know it was growing in that way. But the, you know, uh, had... all, all the rappers wanted to be Michael Jackson <laughs> and Prince. You know, yeah, yeah that's so true. Jay-Z. There's a great quote. Have you guys seen the? Um, do you remember the Michael Jackson documentary that came out during the Number Ones era? I think it was called The One or something like that. That there's a great bit in that where Wycliffe Jean, I think, is giving an interview and he's talking about like, oh, um. When he was growing up, like it doesn't matter how hard the gangster was you were talking to, they'd still be wearing a beat it jacket or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, the other thing that I'd like to the the other thing that's worth mentioning is that for a lot of people, especially my age, the first raps we ever learned, and I mean I've I've been a professional rap artist myself, were like the raps from Jam and tracks like that. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. it's interesting as you guys are talking I'm just thinking like yeah everybody copied Michael and his style and everyone was wearing the beater jackets or the thriller jackets or the socks or the gloves mm-hmm. and I know there were a few impersonators here there who did the Prince thing but I don't think it really took off in the same way like people didn't really go around doing the Prince look no. as, as a mainstream thing like there were a few fans who would sort of get into it but I don't think it really took off fashion wise you know as a mainstream Prince's, look yeah. the weird thing about Prince is even though he was super successful he was never really a mainstream artist there's a book Alan mm-hmm. Light wrote on uh, Purple Rain I think it's that book it was, it's a book I read recently about Prince and uh, the line was that Prince was the world's biggest independent yeah. artist yeah. That's what he really was. He wasn't re- even though he had massive mainstream yeah. success. He was yeah. never really your everyday pop. He wasn't Madonna, like you know. He wasn't no, releasing exactly. yeah. albums and well, he wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't interested in in selling no. you know, so twenty million, him selling million records. Yeah, him selling twenty five million copies of Purple Rain was by accident. You know, was, <laughs> yeah. was, he was. I mean, he didn't goes, write it on his mirror. <laughs> no, no. But the story shows that he did. He did actually no. watch. Uh, watched the grammy awards 84 1984 i can't remember what he watched but i think it's wendy Sus- uh, wendy and lisa are talking in the documentary and they said 
Mm. We were watching something that Michael had done. It was probably the Grammy Awards, I think. And Prince had said something. Oh, the the suggestion was that Prince wanted to be where he was. So oh, yeah, he said, he said, yeah, he said, yeah, uh, he said, next year that's going to be us. Yeah, yeah. So he, yeah, uh, so Michael's success had obviously triggered him. Yeah, mm. but it's. I think it's also important to say that Prince was already on a trajectory. You know, MTV was hugely influential for both Michael and Prince, and every album that Prince had done had been selling more and more records than the one before it up until purple rain and after that he made the backlash and and you know didn't want to continue that path um mm. but he was very much on an upward trajectory before that with 1999 um and you know little red corvette and all that stuff so yeah i think purple rain was definitely commercial and probably not until maybe batman with that whole thing from the movie and then diamonds and pearls that was pretty much his commercial sort of era where he was yeah. popular mm. But after yeah. that, even like the Love Symbol album, I don't think really had as much commercial success. Uh, uh, and then he just pretty much went into becoming an independent artist and just doing yeah. his own thing. And you know what I think the the most the, the best thing about Prince is that no matter what he did, all of his true fans and all of the people that actually had loved him from the beginning or like had loved him from whenever they discovered him always stuck with him. Mm. And I think yeah, that absolutely. is what kept absolutely. him going like that. And that is what kept him like, you know, like famous up to a certain level, like not famous 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 like michael was like where he would be followed around everywhere he would go but like but the famous thing, the in an independent kind of way the thing with prince was that and i remember those years very very vividly um i call it this the pre-musicology years when he was probably at his least commercial that he'd ever been there was always that sense of at any time he could do something that would put him massively back on top again. Mm. And then that's exactly what he did with, with musicology. He did that Grammys performance with Beyonce. Uh, he had the biggest selling tour of the year mm -hmm. with musicology. He generated, you know, more money than, than anyone had, had ever done. Mm. And he always, he always seemed to have moments like that where you just knew yeah. sooner or later. Another one. Yeah, yeah. See, exactly. So you always kind of felt sooner or later, He's going to want to do something yeah. that's absolutely massive. And then, you know, maybe for a few years after that, he won't bother again because he won't, it won't be yeah. what strikes him. But I think with, with Purple Rain, he was in that very, that very fortuitous position that both Michael and Madonna, uh, you know, desperately wanted to, for themselves and that neither of them ever, um, you know, achieved as Prince did, where he had the number one movie at the box office, the number one album mm. in the charts and mm -hmm. the number one single in the charts all at the same time. Yeah. Um, mm. And he had that ability to see where he was going and where these different threads could tie together. And then, bam, he'd strike at the right moment all the time for maximum yeah. effect. And he could always do that. That's the greatest thing. Like, any time he would do something like that, people would be following him and interested in him because he's Prince. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's, it's just amazing. It's just, wow. <laughs> like that, like that, that, that famous, um, that famous guitar solo at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, yeah. when George Harrison was being inducted. Yeah. And I remember in, well, he was alive. The stuff it was hard to find. It, you know, you might find it on YouTube, but most of all, most people didn't know about it. You could show that to anyone. And they would be absolutely blown away. Yeah. Yeah, you show yeah, that to people who, who didn't know anything about Prince, and you would say, "Oh, Prince is a better." I, I I always said I was like, Prince is a guitar as a guitarist is on the level of Hendrix, uh, yeah. or Clapton, or any of these people. And people would be like, "Oh, what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about." And whatever. Show them that one performance, <laughs> they would not yeah. say anything again. Like, yeah, that yeah, kind of bugged me because all these people were coming out and saying. Oh, guess what? He can just like, yeah, where have you been? You know, yeah, because like, like <laughs> if, if you've ever seen Prince play guitar 
in a show, it's like he becomes the guitar and it's like mm-hmm. this almost sexual orgasmic kind of yeah, yeah. moment where he's just and you can see it in his face, you can see it in, in his body and with through exactly. the guitar and his hand. It's like he just becomes this, you know, this exhilarating moment. It's ecstasy and, and that's just incredible. But yeah, it's so funny that people kind of come out and seeing all the these things after the fact and sort of discovering it, which is exciting. I mean, that's kind of, you know, uh, one of the main things here that we're talking about is how, you know, their legacies through through their passing, mm-hmm. you know, the one thing that is, is, if you can say positive, that's come out of all of this is, is that awareness of these artists and the way that mm. yeah. many people have discovered both Michael and Prince through you know, the unfortunate circumstances of their passing. It's like everybody who really should have been paying attention and appreciating these people while they were here, mm. all of a sudden realizes and everybody's kind of coming together and celebrating their lives, their lives and their careers and discovering things that they didn't know. And hopefully think- that's kind of what we're doing with this show. Like hopefully people who maybe were big Michael fans, but didn't really think too much about Prince and maybe through Prince's passing have started to sort of think about it. And maybe Prince fans who have come to the show and uh, are hearing a bit more about Michael and how a lot of us fans who like both Prince and Michael. Very difficult to appreciate one without the other, to be honest. And I always, I'm always suspicious of Michael Jackson fans who are not Prince fans. <laughs> yeah, same, same. Yeah. Like, that's that because if you really if you really want to love Michael Jackson and his music and what he stood for in his career, you have to know Prince. You have to understand yeah. what yeah. was around Michael and what sounds were around Michael and what you know other kind of musicians were doing around him. Uh, otherwise, you're just not going to appreciate him as much as you otherwise. It's like you know you could say I'm a massive Muhammad Ali fan, but if you know nothing about Joe Frazier or George Foreman or their careers and how brilliant yeah. they were at their sports and why it was so important for Muhammad Ali to fight them and challenge them and you wouldn't appreciate him then you have to understand who the other guys are who uh, who yeah. uh, Michael Michael con- Michael's contemporaries were because you know Not only that. he could rule the roost in a kind of wasteland a barren wasteland of pop talent and you know that 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 means nothing but if there's all these other incredible artists who were challenging him and were kind of keeping him on his toes, then you understand, God, he really was something special. And the same for Prince, that, yeah. you know, Prince was operating at a certain time. You know, mm-hmm. if Prince had been operating in the 70s, 60s and 70s, maybe life would have been easier for him. But the yeah. fact that mm-hmm. he was operating when he did, you know, kept him kept him active, kept him working hard, kept him, you know, motivated and inspired. And it just makes you appreciate those artists more. Yeah. yeah. And one thing I, would... I wanted to, to point out about... Yeah. Um, um, Prince as a, as a guitarist and that's that even a lot of guitar players massively uh, underrate him as a guitarist and particularly there's there's this narrative uh, I've discussed this at length with with one of my cousins who's a phenomenal um, guitar player who's played guitar for over you know 25 30 years and um, there's this there's this narrative from from the guitar aficionado world of, of media and journalism and the, you know all these magazines that you see like guitar player and blah 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 and that is that they favor blues and prince rarely played blues and so they mass they just ignore him from the conversation and and that's you know that's that's very Although bizarre if hear, to me if you hear begin woman blues that yeah was absolutely the on the he, musicology he, tour absolutely he could <laughs> when nail he's talking that about as well as anything the, else when, when what is it i had the the regular chips and you had the, yeah, the mother kind 
Amazing, amazing performance. We should probably wrap this up, guys. We're coming into the home stretch here, and hopefully we've uh, we've shed light on a whole bunch of interesting discussion topics. I'm sure there's plenty of fans out there who are who are curious and debating and questioning and having their own opinions, which you know I know I always do when I listen to the show and I want to jump into the conversation, <laughs> but I realise it's already pre-recorded and I'm so, sorry myself. Cool. <laughs> can I just say? Can I just jump in here quickly? Yeah, of because course. I just wanted to say that there was something. See, you that can you, because it's a live show. <laughs> there was something that you mentioned about, you know, the tragedy of their passings, Michael and Prince's passings, and how, for some people, that was a way for them to get into their music and appreciate their artwork, and uh, you know, access their music. And I just wanted to say that's why it's important for fans like us to do our jobs basically and make sure. Mm. Yeah. Prince's and Michael Jackson's legacies are maintained to the highest standards yeah. so that, you know, Absolutely. say, for example, you've just, you're a seven-year-old child, you've heard about Michael Jackson passing away, you've heard that a new CD is coming out, you go to buy the CD and there's three fake songs on there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very important that fans do their job to educate the, you know, the potential future fans because yeah, if this, we don't this... do it, if we don't do it, big businesses yeah. won't give a shit, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, there's very... huge amounts of people trying to control the narrative about Michael in the wrong way, mm-hmm. as I think we all understand. And, you know, it's it's obviously, obviously we'll work very hard to counter that. But I think with Prince having passed away so recently, this is a very key moment to let uh, the people that have been placed in charge know that we will not settle for any mm. of the kind of nonsense that that we've seen with with Michael's uh, estate, right. and I've 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 told I've I've said that directly to Londell McMillan um, mm. in in conversations that we've had in the last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's obviously as I said uh, before why Kim and myself are making our, our videos with the the Violet Reality to make sure that the legacy is treated properly. Mm-hmm. And if there are any mis- missteps, they will be called out immediately yeah. uh, and it, it won't be stood for. So. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, for example, in Michael's case, you know, what Charlie was talking about, Michael's heroic, you know, what makes him such a hero is all of the battles he fought and, you know, mm-hmm. the Sony battle he fought and, you know, taking on a massive global corporation as he did. Yep. Sony won't tell us that story. And no, if, of course, no. not. Of course <laughs> not. If the narrative is in their hands, you know, that's all going to be kind of airbrushed out of history. So, yeah, you know, the, yeah. Fact that, the fact that Branko was fired for working for Sony, that's a very yeah. clear thing that the entire community mm-hmm. should know. And yes, that definitely. obviously Sony are not going to tell people. No. No, exactly. So hence it's, you know, as fans, we have a massive responsibility. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, we're pretty much having final thoughts and reflections here. So uh, does anyone want to sort of say any last minute things about Prince or Michael and how they feel they should be remembered and their legacies and those kinds of things? I just want to say that if anybody tries to hire stupid producers like Timberland to remix a Prince song, there will be blood. (laughs) (laughs) Fine talk, man. All right. So maybe I should say something a bit nicer then. (laughs) Okay. So I think that because um, Prince is passing away was so so recent i think we should just for the upcoming couple of years we should just remember him as like well first of all if you were there to be like there to experience him on twitter and how funny he was with us you should remember prince for 
the person he was, the phenomenal artist he was, the amazing musician, the guitarist that could literally blow your mind any time you hear him play that guitar. But I think you should also remember him for the human being that he was and how down to earth he was while he had loads of success. But he would always he would always be funny and he had a great sense of humor and he would always interact with us. He would always reach out to us and interact with fans. And that was really nice. And I think you can say the same thing about Michael. Like no matter how many people were chasing him or what kind of situation he was he would always 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 make time for his fans he loved his fans so much and no matter what he had been through he would always trust and love and just be so wonderful to his fans and i think michael should always be remembered as this really 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 kind-hearted human being that was almost not of this world like it was almost outer-worldly that kind of thing and I think that no one should ever remember him as the person that the media tried to portray him to be because he was nothing like that. And we should protect that at all costs that we tell our like youth and like generations after our generations that Michael was actually a gift to the world rather than this really, really bad man the media thinks that he was. Wow. Yeah, I mean, just agree with all of that. I'm just to say that I'm really realize how privileged I was to kind of live my life during their peaks and like during their massive successes and how much of, I, mean, I can only imagine what, I couldn't even imagine what my life would be like had either of them not been a massive part of it because so many, mm-hmm. so much of, you know, the work I do, like I got into artwork, like I said, the last time I was on the show that I got into art because of Michael Jackson, I'm a, you know, a graphic designer now working on huge projects around the, around the world now. Um, and none of that would have happened without Michael Jackson. And um, the friends I made, obviously, Casey, I've known you for like, however many years now. I've known Charlie for over 10 years. And, you know, what time is it now? In the UK, it's five o'clock. You don't stay on the phone line five o'clock in the morning if you don't love Michael Jackson. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, just feel very, very privileged to be a fan of both of them. And I should say, if you are if you are a fan of Michael Jackson and you really want to appreciate him, or Prince, in that case, you really should, re- you know, study who who his contemporaries were and the kind of music that was around while he was around and the kind of music that he was influenced by and who obviously inspired him and his sister and his family. And, you know, it, it, it would, your appreciation of, of Michael would, you know, be increased immeasurably, I imagine. Yep. Um what I, as I mentioned before to a few people listening to this may not know that I was uh, the only fan uh, who had his words written in Prince's Memorial program and also my voice was uh, played at the Memorial program as well and what I said, a part of what I said in that was that it applies to Michael as much as it applies to Prince and that is that as fans we have a responsibility to uh, protect the community, the, the true fan community that understands the messages of the artists and to ensure that that community passes on that knowledge to the next generation and, and doesn't distort it. You know, Michael talked about heal, heal the world and Prince talked about love for one another. And those are the cornerstones of both of their messages, in my opinion. Fantastic. What a great note to end on, I think. That's that's amazing. I think um, I think we're going to wrap it up, hey, Jamie. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think it's a great note to finish on. Um, what a special opportunity yeah. it's been for us all to come together and talk about Michael and Prince uh, comparatively, and um, to 
you know, see the similarities in their in their journeys as artists and also the differences. Um, in, in some ways, they were so far apart and so different and their trajectories didn't come together very often. But in other circumstances, they were so similar and they fought many of the same issues, um, you know, whether it be against control from the music industry or whether it was about bringing people together um, as one, you know, both of both artists focused on those things. So, yeah, it's great gr- being great being able to talk about this. Thank you so much to to everybody, every participant who's been on the show. Um, it's been very special oh, and, a, and, a, and, a, mm-hmm. and a big moment for the MJ cast as well as we have um, now done our first roundtable special. So thank you and thank you, Paul, as well. Oh, wow. For, awesome. For, uh, <laughs> sharing that. Thanks, guys. I just want to give a massive shout out to, to you, Jamin, and, and Q, who obviously isn't here. Paul, you did an absolutely fantastic job, um, you know, moderating everything tonight um, and obviously contributing as well. Cheers. Sam, what can I say? You rock. <laughs> <laughs> Bless you, man. Bless you, champ. Uh, and where's Q, man? Getting back on the show. I miss that guy. I love He's, that guy. Um, yeah, I know. You, the only reason you did the last gig because you thought he was going to be on there, right? <laughs> um, no, he's, he'll be back in, what are we? So episode 42. Uh, I'm just having a look now. Episode 43. He's definitely back for episode 43. We've got a very exciting Halloween thriller night special planned, which he'll be on for that. So Wow. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Fantastic. Thank you. All righty. Well, that's... Uh, pretty much a good time to call it a wrap it's been a pretty amazing discussion uh we've had some interesting things to to talk about for both prince and michael jackson and hopefully the fans out there of both artists can kind of get a sense of of uh how these amazing icons have uh lived their careers and shared uh their music and their performance with the world and hopefully you you got a few things that you maybe didn't know about uh, one or both of the artists. So I'd like to say thank you very much to everyone for participating today. So so let's say thank you to Kim, first of all. Thanks, Kim. You're welcome. It was really lovely to be on the show. Excellent. And thanks, Casey. Thank you so much. Um, I'd just like to say that um, People who are fans of both Prince and Michael Jackson are my favorite type of people. And it seems like uh, it seems like there's a lot more of them these days. At one time, it was unheard of, um, but now it's happening. So Awesome. And uh, thank you very much, Charles, for sort of hanging in there. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. And Sam, thank you very much. Oh, no worries. Anytime, man. Thanks. And, of course, a big thank you to Jamin and Q, who's not quite with us at the moment, but I'm sure you'll hear him in the in the outro of the show. Thanks, Jamin. It's been a pleasure. No worries. It's what we do. And uh, I'd also like to say as well to you, Paul, thank you very much for uh, everything you've done for this show, especially moderating this, this uh, great discussion we've had. It's been fantastic. And thank you very much for all your preparation and effort. No worries. It's been a pleasure. Anytime. We look forward to seeing you guys again soon. Keep Michaeling.
there we are. That's a wrap of part two of our first ever roundtable. Jamin, well done. Oh. Like, I, great job to everyone. Incredible. Paul Black, what a host. Yeah, amazing. So good. So lucky. Thank you, Paul. Love you, man. But everyone that contributed in the show, I just incredible detail and stories. And, yeah, Jamin, thank you so much for putting all this together. Absolute pleasure. It's what we do. Uh, we've definitely had a lot of great feedback around our roundtable show and or concept, I should say, and it's something I would definitely like to explore more in the future. Uh, we've kicked around some interesting ideas, haven't we? Like maybe possibly a roundtable on a particular album. Um, it's really limitless. I saw on Facebook um, Ali and Sandra were talking about um, potentially doing a roundtable-style episode just on Michael Jackson's fashion. Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. But I reckon some of these episodes would be like 12 parts long. <laughs> 12 part roundtables. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. They could go forever. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we'll explore that in the future and see what happens. It won't be often. It might be, you know, once every uh, four months or something like that. We might do a roundtable show, but it will make sure to make it as interesting as we can for listeners um, getting on expert guests. And my dream definitely would be to do a roundtable with a mixture of expert fans, maybe authors, and people who knew Michael Jackson in the context that the show's about, which would be, that'd be, I reckon that'd be so much fun. It'd be pretty, pretty, a lot of work to pull off, but. Oh my God. Just even putting this one together, I can see how much work it was synchronizing everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that would be cool. All right. So yeah, in this episode, we did play uh, two Michael Jackson tracks and one Prince track. We hope you enjoyed those mixes. That's right. We played three songs, uh, kicked it off with one of my favorite Michael Jackson tracks, Human Nature from Thriller. It was a remix version by friend of the show, remixed by Nick. Nick, we love your work. We followed that one up with Paul Black's favorite ever Prince song called Thieves in the Temple, remix version. And finally, we played the 2010 version of the previously unreleased Michael Jackson song, Do You Know Where Your Children Are? This is my absolute favorite version of the song with Steve Lukather on guitar. Really hope you enjoyed the songs we played in this episode. So we had a lot of terrific feedback after we uh, premiered episode 41, the part one of this roundtable. And uh, just some names that I wanted to say thank you to for their feedback and um, participation. I wanted to, on Twitter, I wanted to say thanks to Bruce Aguilar, Life is Busy Okay, Clint NB, Carly, Karthik M, Killer Kai, and Rushin. And on email, I wanted to say thank you to Denise Purcell, Lena Jacob, and Ashley White. Also, A. Riverag, Danny Taylor, and Michiel Janssen from the Netherlands. Thank you so much to everyone that sent in emails and feedback from the show. Um, I think out of every single show we've done over both seasons, we really received the most constructive feedback, um, which we did ask for, for this this episode roundtable. So thank you so much. I think one of the big things that came up was the length of the intro in part one. We, um, we sort of did that, I think, based on feedback from previous shows where we didn't give guests much of a chance for an introduction to themselves and, and who they were. 
So we sort of went, I guess, hard into the intros on this one. <laughs> and now we just have to learn to dial it back a bit. So, yeah, we've taken like countless notes and for future stuff, we've got your feedback and we'll be definitely um, looking and implementing some of that. So we really, really do thank you for your honesty for that. And we look forward to your feedback for this episode 42 for part two of the roundtable. Absolutely. And you might be asking yourself where you can find us online. Uh, we are all over the internet. We're at themjcast.com. That's our official website. You can find us on lots of social media platforms. We're on twitter.com slash themjcast, facebook.com slash themjcast, instagram.com slash themjcast. We're over at youtube.com slash plus themjcast. P.S. Apologies for being a little bit behind on getting episodes up on there. Working on it. Uh, we're at themjcast.tumblr.com. Com. And of course, if you want to send us emails, we absolutely love getting emails during the week from listeners all over the world. You can reach us at the MJCast at iCloud.com. Uh, I also said earlier that I'd let you guys know where you can find uh, our guests online. So Charles Thompson. Charles is a great guest on the MJ cast. He features on a lot of our episodes as guest host, and he covers a lot of legal information about Michael Jackson. If you want to read his thoughts, you can find him on Twitter at C.E. Thompson. That's Thompson without a P, though. So C-E-T-H-O-M-S-O-N. Uh, Samar of the Michael Jackson Academia Project. He offers a lot of fantastic information about the world of Michael Jackson and the goings-on um, from, I guess, a legal stance as well, especially about the Michael Jackson estate. Great thoughts from Samar. You can find him at the MJAP on Twitter. Casey Rain, huge Michael Jackson fan, but also a massive Prince fan. 50% of the Violet Reality. You can find him at Casey Rain on Twitter. And his wonderful, wonderful partner, Kim Camellia, the other half of... Uh, the Violet Reality. You can find her at Kim Camellia on Twitter, K-I-M-C-A-M-I-L-I-A. And if you want to keep in touch with me, you can reach me at the MJ Cast, of course, on Twitter. But I do also have a personal Twitter account, uh, and that's at Jamin Bull, J-A-M-O-N-B-U-L-L. Nice. What a great group. Thanks. If you enjoyed uh, this roundtable, um, I remember I enjoyed over at the Dream Lives On podcast with um, Elizabeth and Karen. Um, they had a sort of Prince podcast with a couple of other ladies and they were discussing uh, Michael Jackson and Prince's careers as well. I think that might have been episode eight and nine. Yeah, it was episode eight and nine and it was their first ever really long episode, I remember. They um, always had done sort of like 50-minute or under episodes and then they came out with uh, their Prince and Michael Jackson episode. It was one and a half hours long. Um, which yeah, was I really like great. long episodes. Me that too. was a good discussion as well. So maybe, you know, if you if you like this, if you want to learn more um, about both artists um, or an artist that you're not familiar with, if you're on one camp, then, yeah, there's there's another couple of podcasts that you might be interested in listening to. Absolutely. On the note of uh, Prince-related podcasts, I just want to give a special shout-out as well to the Peach and Black podcast. They're a great Australian-based Prince-related podcast. I've heard people in the Prince community describe them as the MJ cast of the Prince world. Um, no way. Yeah, no, I'm serious. I'm serious. <laughs> so, um, great, great podcast. Check those guys out. Thank you so much to Peach and Black as well for uh, giving us a like on Facebook and also sharing our show on Twitter. We deeply appreciate it. Thank you. Wow. That's so cool. But wow. Yeah. 
can't, can't believe people compare other shows to us. It's so weird. <laughs> I know. It's so weird. Wow. Thank you so much, Jamin, though, for again putting this awesome, awesome episode group together. Um, and, and to all the team that participated, thank you so much. I loved listening to it and learning from you. I think that's the thing that yes. I got most out of this was like, you know, I wasn't, I did get to see Prince and I'm so grateful for that and it changed my life. Um, but I'm not like a mega Prince fan, but I got to learn a lot more uh, about sort of his side of the coin. And I really do see sort of Michael and Prince almost as um, one coin and the two different faces on the coin. I think just incredible parallel paths and, and careers and complementary art. So, yeah, thank you all for sharing everything and i really loved it and just well done to everyone i can't wait to get you on a round table at some point <laughs> oh yeah for sure like yeah it was a bit of a bummer that i missed out on this but i honestly think that these shows and the shows that i wasn't able to participate in that they were stronger for it because you filled that with people that could offer so much more than what I could have. So I, I thank you for for doing such a great job when I was away. Oh no worries. It's 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 good to have you back now. Um for for the next episode onwards for the rest of the year. And yeah. uh, how are you feeling about our show lineup taking us out to the end of the year? In some ways, I'm really excited, and other ways, I'm a bit sad because we've actually got more show plans and concepts and and potential guests that we could have done this year that we just do not have time for. I know. I know. We've like, act- it's I'm, crazy. I'm like, man, we could have, we, you know, like just the time we have available to record these shows, we could have done, God, at least another probably six to eight shows for the rest of the year, but we just don't have time. I know. That's because we're sticking to that fortnightly schedule. Imagine yeah. if we could both quit our jobs and do the MJ cast full time. <laughs> no way. I don't, I don't want to be on the ground all the time. Oh, that's right. You're Superman. <laughs> I like being in flying around the sky. <laughs> but yeah, I'll be back uh, for our next show, which is a Thriller Night special. Woo. <laughs> Exciting. This is going to be, oh my God. This this episode in particular, the Thriller Night one, um, I'm not going to give anything away to anyone, but just stop ma- talking now, Jamin. Oh, I want to give a teaser of it. <laughs> no teasers. <laughs> no, it's going to be good fun. That's all I'm going to say is it's going to be good fun. And yeah, maybe go watch, you know, Thriller and Ghosts and listen to some cool Michael Halloween stuff before the show. Definitely. Have a great fortnight ahead, folks. Make sure you keep Michaeling. Michael on. The MJ Cast. Yeah. Um, and so just quickly, Charles, so when you have to leave, are you just going to disappear or do you want to find a break point to say that you're going? Or are we... um, I will. No, I'll let you know before I'm going to go. All right. Go I want to hang on. I want to hang on at least until the, um, the bit about um, the record industry. All right, cool. Go have a coffee, buddy. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> We All can right, we cool. can cover. I mean, we can cover. We can go into that maybe after the introduction, the personal experiences bit. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you go from there to maybe to like breakout moments. So go from the like yeah. record industry thing to breakout moments. So twist that around. All right. So the yeah, record cause, cause industry. If, if if you guys want to edit it so that it's back in this order yeah. you know, afterwards, then you can do that. But yeah. I think Charlie might collapse soon. So. Yeah. <laughs> Charles, just send me a few vocal snippets through email of you going, yes, I agree. Ha, ha, ha. And I'll like, paste that into the show. 
Yeah, I don't yeah. agree. <laughs> His no. history tour is the best tour of all time, Charles. I agree. I agree. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>